episode number 57, April Vizco. Welcome back to the Tuttle Block, a podcast about Canadian theatre designers, their history, and their craft. And I am, as usual, your host, Michael Cruz. And this time I have an interview with the fabulous designer, April Visco. Now, this is a bit of a diversion from my BC tour, but in this uncertain times in Alberta and Canadian theatre in general, I thought it was important to get this interview with April out sooner than later. You see... April's not only an associate professor at the University of Calgary and the former chair of drama, she's also a past president at the Associated Designers of Canada. She was leading the board through a large renegotiation of the contract with PACT and an upgrading of what are commonly called the minimum fee schedules. And the story she has to tell about how she got involved and modernized the ADC is an important one for all Canadian designers to hear. We, of course, speak about her design career as well, and as a member of the pivotal collection of design assistants at the Stratford Festival in the early 2000s that included Lorenzo Savoini, Dana Osborne, Michael J. Francesco, and Katja Hubachek. We also speak of a surprising apprenticeship that started her career and her return to the prairies where she was born and raised to teach design at the University of Calgary. Well, of course, she wasn't, she wasn't born and raised to teach design at the University of Calgary, but she was born and raised on the prairies, and she returned to, okay, you get it. Now, don't worry, there are plenty more West Coast designers to come, and I'll be putting out a bunch before the end of the year. Remember to check out the show notes at thetitleblock.com, and if you like the show, please go to patreon.com slash thetitleblockpodcast and help support these efforts. Now, here is my explosive conversation with April Vixco. God, I have to stop watching design and build car shows on Netflix. April Vixco is a set and costume designer. Have you ever done lighting? Yeah. Okay, and lighting designer, triple threat, uh, in theater for the last 25 years. Something like that. Since she left um, the University of Alberta with a BFA in design. She's worked across the country. She's originally from Saskatoon, and she's here in her office talking to me in Calgary while I'm out here doing some work for non-theater stuff. (laughs) April, welcome to the title block. Thank you. That was the worst intro I've ever done. <laughs> it's the cold. It is the cold, but I'm happy to have you here, and I'm happy that you allowed me to hang out with you. I'm, I'm glad. Here at the University of Calgary. All right. So uh, I did not realize you were originally from Saskatoon. Um, well, a small town outside of Saskatoon. Okay. What's the name of the town? Prudhomme. Oh, Prudhomme, which I have heard of. It's the birthplace of the first lady governor general of Canada. Oh, take that. Madame Jeanne Sauvé was born in Prudhomme, Saskatchewan. Nice. That's terrific. Uh, And then you somehow got involved in the theater. Mm -hmm. How did that happen? How did you get interested? What was your first experience? And why did you ever want to go into this crazy My first experience in the theater, and I remember it vividly, um, was uh, in school in Edmonton, because I was born in Edmonton when my family moved later to small town, right? So I uh, was seeing a show, and I don't know what theater it was. It was, you know, maybe seven years old, and I'm in the theater, and it was Beauty and the Beast. And I remember thinking, is that Rose real? 
And I remember thinking, how did they find the hairy guy to play the beast? Like, where did he come from? So I had all these, you know, and I wondered if people actually lived in those houses all the time. Like, how did they get their houses on stage? Like, <laughs> the, the sort of townspeople. Yeah, um, the fantasy was complete. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. So uh, that was my first experience that I that I know of in the theater. Um, and yeah, then I, I've always been interested. I joined, you know, in high school, I was part of the drama club and stuff like that. So, and then just, just, uh, I was bit. Uh, and what, uh, you went to the uh, University of Alberta in Edmonton. Yeah, right? I started at the University of Saskatchewan okay. for two years. Um, and when I came back from Italy the first time I went, so I graduated from high school and went to uh, Italy on student exchange and then came back and went to the University of Saskatchewan and I was enrolled in education because I was going to be a drama teacher. And because uh, my family had convinced me that education would be a safer route, you know. And then I took some theater design classes and prop building classes. And that was it. I knew this was me. And so then I applied to the BFA at U of A and got in and went. That's great. Uh, what happened in Italy? Uh, what you're on exchange there? Were you just like touring and seeing museums and art and doing all that stuff? Or were you doing anything specific? I was, I was on student exchange. So I, I did an extra year of high school. Um, so I went right after grade 12 and I lived with a family, um, with interculture, what was called interculture Canada. And, uh, it was originally started by the American field service. And so it's called AFS interculture Canada. And it was student exchange program that was created right after world war two to promote world peace and understanding. And so you live with a family for a whole year. So unlike a rotary exchange where you sort of, you live with a family for three to four months and then you move to another family. This one, you live with one family for the whole year and uh, you go to high school and try and live like an Italian um, or wherever you are. Can I do that now? I know. I know. I'd love to do it. I'd love to do it again. That'd be great. Um, it was, pro it was a life changing, you know, you have to imagine I, I came from small town Saskatchewan, a little town of 200 people and uh, went to high school. My parents sent me to high school in Prince Albert, Saskatchewan, where I, you know, was uh, Catholic, all girls, run by nuns, very sheltered kind of life. And here I taken off going to Italy and seeing art that I've never seen before in my life. And it turns out that the family I was living with, their daughter was going to art school because their high schools are sort of streamed into these, you know, sort of either trades or geography or classics or something. And so she was going to art school. So they said, well, we'll just send you to the same place. And so I took drawing classes for the first time. I took sculpture classes. I took architecture, um, you know, and learned to speak Italian. Now I'm fluent in Italian. And um, I had a great time. Beautiful, beautiful experience. That's incredible. And that will be a theme that comes back later yeah. in your training. Yeah. Uh, while you're doing your BFA in Edmonton, uh, who were you working with? This was what year? Give us a... Uh, so I moved to Edmonton in 1995. And uh, it was a three-year uh, BFA. So I did three years there, finished in 1998. So who was I working with? Um, I went to school with Sherry Hoyles. And uh, Georgia Lee was also in my class. And um, we, David Fraser was a year behind me, who is now production manager at ATP. And... Um, 
I did a lot of work then with Kevin Sutley, who's who I've done other work with since and continue. Um, and JP Fournier was doing his master's then. He had sort of taken a break from his professional life and was doing his MFA. So I, I designed uh, JP Fournier's master's thesis production um, when I was an undergrad. And um, who else was there? Bo Coleman I did some work with. Um, How yeah. about uh, mentors? Who David was Lovett was teaching there okay. at the time and Lee Livingston. Right. Oh, Lee Livingston. Yeah. Uh, forgive my ignorance. Lee was from the U.S., right? She isn't from the U.S. Ever, uh, like she's not. Um, I don't think she's American, but she spent quite a bit of time in the U.S. working okay. in the U.S. Right. Okay. Um, anything? Are, are they still at Edmonton? Lee's David still in Lee? Edmonton, yeah. and Dave, David's retired since. Right. And uh, he's, but he's still in Edmonton. Yep. Okay. Awesome. There's like a whole bunch of new names I don't know anymore. Yeah, yeah. Um, great. Uh, and so you got through that, and then you just landed in Edmonton, and you're going to be a great designer. That's how it worked out, right? Yeah. That's how, that's how it yeah, always happens. It. Life's over. Yeah. <laughs> you do your BFA and career's over. Um, no. So I, I decided I was going to go back to Italy. I was dying to go back to Italy. So it had been five years since I'd been there. So I got a gig uh, teaching English at a summer camp. Um, just kind of, you know, a thing you do. And so I went over to Italy. And then I, from there, kind of got the packed theater equivalent book of all the theater listings, right. right? And it's quite a bit thicker than the Canadian theater listing. Yes. It's it's significantly yes. um, thicker. So sort of sussed it out and checked things out and got to meet with a couple of designers, um, met with, um, you know, some who I wrote to La Scala. I wrote to, like, I just, you know, I, as, I was so young does. and naive. I just, yeah, like, dear La whatever. Scala, please. Yeah, dear La Scala, I'm from Canada yeah. and I'm here in Italy and I would love to meet your designers. And they sort of, they, it was really amazing how, how people or companies, this has happened my whole career is that people respond to cold calling. Um, in, and so they responded and said, oh, you should get in touch with these two designers. So I did. I sent another letter, you know, and this was before email because it was, again, it was 1998. So people were using email, but it wasn't, you weren't using email to look for jobs. That was like, nobody did that. That was an inappropriate way to introduce yourself. And so we, we sent letters. So I wrote more letters and uh, Ezio Frigerio got back to me. And he said, I'm "Sorry, say that a bit slower." Ezio yes. Frigerio, okay, who's a you know he's a kind of a renowned uh, opera designer, and said, "Well, you know, um, if you want to meet, I'll meet you at Chano Technica Pew when I'm in Rome." And I said, "Okay," and he said, "I'll be there at the end of August." And I said, um, "Okay, I don't know if I'll be in Rome at that time." Well, he said, "Well, I'm not coming to find you." And I said, "Well, no, I, that wasn't the expectation, but you know, okay." Um, so I did manage to get to Rome when he was going to be there. And he said, so call Shino Technica and just set up a meeting. So I did that. And I talked to a wonderful woman on the phone named Lorenza. And she said, so here's what you do. You go to the last subway stop going east in Rome and get on a bus that's going to Tivoli. And then tell the driver you want to get off at the Pentagon. Sure. So, and then from there, go to the gas station and call us 
from the payphone, right? Because nobody had cell phones. Nobody no, had, this that's was nuts. Like before all that. Yeah. So, um, and she said, and someone will come pick you up. And when I think about it now, I think I would never do this. But at the time I was 23 and what the hell did I have to lose? Nothing. So I took the train to the end, got on the bus, told the driver I want to get off the Pentagon. Turns out the Pentagon is a furniture warehouse in the middle of nowhere, like in the middle of nowhere countryside Italy. And so literally there was the Pentagon, il Pentagono, and the Ajip gas station. And so, and it was hot. It was so hot. Like it was hot, like your shoes were sticking to the pavement hot. So I walk across the parking lot and I go into the Ajip gas station, which also has a bar and a hot food station and because it's Italy. And, um, and every gas station has a hot table. Yeah. Right? yeah. yeah like it's not? like, you know, you can get your pepperonata and your pasta shoot and <laughs> exactly. your espresso and your gas. So, so I called Shanotechnica and I said, I'm here. And they said, yeah, no problem. Somebody will be by to pick you up in a minute. Great. So how am I going to know this person? Who is this person? What? Nothing. Right. So anyway, a young woman, thank God it was a younger woman looked about my age. Um, shows up in this like dumpy car and is covered in paint and I go well that's my people so okay so I get in the car and we drive to uh, Shano Technica's warehouse which happened to be shared with Rancati which was also the big prop house in Italy and they did all like they did a whole bunch of swords it was run by the Rancati family and they uh, they did Titus for Julie Taymor and um, they were this big That's prop house, crazy. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I arrive in the middle of this. I'm, I'm not kidding you, Michael. It was a warehouse in a field. There was nothing. Yeah. Like there was not like if there, this could have been a serial killer scenario so easily. So I go into this room and they say, just wait here. And um, uh, Signor Friasconato will be with you in a minute. Yeah. I'm like, okay, whatever. So I'm waiting. And so I meet the sort of administrative head of this company and then uh, meet Ezio Frigerio and show my portfolio and we get chatting and all that jazz. And um, he's looking at my stuff and, you know, I'm green. I'm like straight out of theater school in Canada in from Edmonton um, talking to this opera design, highly cultured opera designer, you know, and just being sort of, you know, innocent me. And um, yeah, he says, well, you know, uh, if you want, you could come and assist me in my studio in Paris, but you'll have to get yourself there. And, you know, I can give you a place to sleep, but I really can't pay you very much. And so there's all this chat going on. And um, he wasn't overly friendly. He was kind of cold, kind of standoffish. And um, so, so we leave it at that. And he says, so call me, you know, Call me, uh, I think it was October 1st or something like that. Um, when I get back from my next gig and then we'll sort it out. So fine. Um, but then when he leaves, Mr. Fiasconaro, who's the son-in-law of um, Luciano Antonetti, who was the plaster man for all of Zeffirelli's films. So he did Lord, all of the... That's like, nuts <laughs> again. So he did... So Antonetti owns this company yeah. Shino Technica Pew it's his company so they've done all of Zeffirelli's films they do his operas they do Hugo Deana's operas they you know so they're 
they're a really amazing place. So from this sort of boring office that's in the upstairs of this warehouse, um, Fiasco Naro takes me for a tour down, downstairs in the studios. And my, my mind, like my little, my little 23-year-old head, like just explodes off my neck in front of it. Like I'm just losing my mind. So they have a team of six sculptors who sculpt in clay and in styrofoam. And they're, uh, they have a team of like... I don't know how many there were, maybe eight carpenters at the time that were working on different films and opera projects. And their specialty was um, fiberglass scenery. So they did, uh, they did crazy things like drive the designer around and say, so what kind of rock do you want? You want this kind of rock or you want that kind of rock? And you want, you want how many olive trees do you want? And so they'd drive them around in, car, in cars and then they'd, they'd go set up and they'd basically paint latex on the side of a mountain and then make a mother form out of wood and cover it with plaster, let it dry, cut it, bring it back to the studio, reassemble it, and then make the rock. So they'd make the positive and then make the negative and then make the positive again out of fiberglass. And so, and they would do this with, with sculptural forms. So I, I ended up doing crazy things with them. Like doing every drawing had to be full scale so everything had to be one-to-one um so we would draw like these crazy ornate um moldings or you know grapes hanging down on a thing all full scale and then give it to the the sculptors and they would sculpt it out of clay or out of styrofoam or whatever and then again we'd cast it and then it cast it again and and it would be made out of fiberglass and turn it just you know scenery attached to flats or i would do (laughs) plans of uh, uh, columns for the carpenters. Again, everything has to be one-to-one, even if it was just like four feet of straight line (laughs) and then half an inch away and then another half an inch away. Anyway, but precision in scenic construction that was phenomenal. Um, And a group of really young uh, sculptors, a fun team, and then upstairs in the office, they were also working on... um, some 3D rendering and Maya and um, digital animation, which is like really on the cutting edge of scenery, right? And this notion of scenery being also 3D digital. So this is my first exposure to 3D digital kind of, you know, in 1998, right? And um, so it was fascinating. And I did things like um, one of my first assignments there (laughs) was to go um, do some scenic painting out at the Villa Borghese Zoo. So, that, so like that's one of my nuts. first gigs. The Filiborghese is like a brilliant <laughs> manor museum filled with uh, Bernini's. I know. There's his first sculpture, and then there's like his last sculpture. I know, and, and the and Canova, and yeah, yeah beautiful, right? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So, but the zoo, there's a zoo, right, in the park. Yeah. So, I'm sent to the zoo with Piero, um, who they called Bambashone, and. And uh, which is sort of means like ragamuffin because he was he was sort of this like really adorable sort of teddy bear chubby Italian boy um, who was absolutely benign. Right. Like just the sweetest guy. And he and I were out there scenic painting in the heat of an Italian August or I guess it was early September. And um you know, painting bamboo that was going to go behind the pandas that, that was, you know, like literally we had 
bamboo that had been tied together and then they cast it out of fiberglass and this whole thing. So we were painting the bamboo and making these funny signs that had to go and, you know, um, (laughs) and so I kept having this surreal moments every now and then of thinking like, I'm in the Villa Borghese Zoo (laughs) scene painting. And so the crew, the other carpenters who were there, you know, uh, so we ended up being Bumbashone and Bumbashona. And, (laughs) you know, these two chubby scenic painters who were having a good time laughing in the Villa Borghese Zoo. That's awesome. Yeah. That's an incredible experience. Um, Like, then it was over, right? Then you were there for a year. Yeah, I was there for a year. So I, you know, um, I went over without a visa. I... I kind of uh, was there for as long as it made sense. My ticket was going to expire. I knew I wasn't going to live in Italy for the rest of my life. Um, And I had a great time. So I just decided it was... Shano Technique also went through, uh, at that moment, was, you know, in between gigs. And so people were being laid off. And, you know, um, and you you can't work illegally forever in a a state like that. So I had to decide, am I going to like try and legitimize this or am I going to, and how long am I really going to stay? So I, I decided it was time to go home and, um, had been in Italy for about a year. And, um, yeah, so I went home and stayed in Saskatoon and, um, till I figured out my next move, which was Toronto. Yeah. And tell me, uh, how, you picked Toronto like how did that happen and and what was the sort of the the boot at the door as it were to, to <laughs> it was literally like like a boot at the door mm-hmm. um so I'm staying at my mom's in Saskatoon because that was where home was and you know I'd been there a couple of months and I was trying to figure out what what am I going to do next and uh she kind of passed me in the hallway one day at home and she said you know you can you can live in my house for as long as you want um, but you know, you can't stay, right? Like you can't stay in Saskatoon. And so, cause my experience had been bigger than Saskatoon, right? Like I just come back from this amazing experience. And so she, I think partly she didn't want me to waste that, but also I had outgrown, I had outgrown my spot in the world. And so I didn't really want to go back to Edmonton at that time um, uh, because I just felt like I'd just been to Italy. So I'm I'm still adventure hungry. And uh, so I could have gone to Vancouver, I guess. I didn't know anybody in Vancouver. I knew one person in Toronto. And so my mom bought me a one-way ticket to Toronto. And I packed one suitcase of art supplies and one suitcase of clothes and moved to Toronto. Uh, it was also this was in 1999, I guess, right? Yeah, it was late 99 when I when so that, I went. That would have been just before kind of the recession. No, it was a couple of years before SARS. It was a few years before SARS. A few years before SARS, but so. it was it was kind of uh, yeah, it was an interesting uh, it was an interesting time because there was still a bit of up upswing happening, right? And then I think the recession happened sort of in and around but it you know as as a young freelancing artist that the recession didn't impact me directly in that moment um so it was it there was a lot of hustle 
Um, and I guess I had a lot of hustle. Um, so I found gigs and eventually I got, uh, I was interviewed at Stratford. Uh, Doug Perestek interviewed me there with Alex Dulgoy and, um, they didn't have a gig then, but you know, if something came up and then I was assisting <laughs> Michael Levine, um, cause I cold called and wrote anybody anytime. So, yeah. So, so back up a second, tell me you landed in Toronto and you, you had a meeting with the great Chuck, Chuck Homewood, Homewood yeah. right at the ADC. Yeah. He was the, uh, the executive director of ADC for yeah. most of the nineties, I think. Quite a long time. Quite now. a long time, right? So tell me what you landed in Toronto. You went to see Chuck. And so I landed in Toronto and I, I called Chuck first and on the phone. He said, well, you should come come down to the office and, and let's meet. And so I went down to the office and I brought my portfolio and he's like, you're not going to show me that. I don't know anything about design. He's like, I just help designers. I don't, I don't you know. And so this is an interesting experience because I'd, I'd, never, I'd never met Chuck before. And um, he said to me, here's, it, again, best career advice ever. So he says, here's the membership book. Call everybody in the book. And um, I'm looking at him like, are you like, are you serious for everybody in the book? And he says, yeah, and, and don't tell them you're looking for work. Tell them you're uh, new to Toronto, you've just worked in Italy, and you really want to hear about what they're working on. So best advice ever, because people really responded and you know you hear those and they feel I think when you hear them as a young person they sound like um cliches when someone says oh we should try and have something interesting on your resume that no one else has you know so working in Italy was something no one else in my cohort at that moment had right um so it was interesting enough that Quite a few designers responded to my cold calls or my cold facts. Because <laughs> again, this was before email was an appropriate way to introduce yourself. So um, I got one gig after another and it just, you know, so you start with one and then I'd meet with another designer and, well, oh, I see you brought your portfolio. Well, let's talk about you for a little while after we talked about all the things that they are working on. And, you know, I don't really have a gig to hire an assistant right now, but, well, maybe, you know, so they get to know you a little bit. They get to like you. Um, they take your CV away and, and you know, eventually you get a call. It is kind of like it's not too fine a point to say that – the, the way you succeed in theater is about fitting into a community and about being a member of that community, right? Yeah. And uh, it sounds like what you did was you met everybody and had a chat and were interested in their life, which is how you build friendships, which is how you build relationships. Uh, and you, you know, you built community, which is a great way to yeah. enter the business, right? Um, so that sounds like perfect advice. I can't believe, like Chuck Homeward is, a, is a, he's a dear. He was, a, he's a dear man. Uh, and that was awesome advice and supportive of of young yeah, people, right? Yeah. So that's again where I think, uh, you know, he could have easily said to me like, "What? What are you doing here, kid? Like, you just came from Edmonton, Saskatoon. Like, you know, sure, get a couple of gigs and give me a call, right?" Um, he could have easily have done that, and he didn't. He he said, "Come on in. Let me see your face. Let me talk to you. You know." And and that was really remarkable. That's awesome. And so uh, Paul Matheson was the first person that actually so, hired you, right? Yeah. So yeah. Paul Matheson, 
hired me to go work on The Rape of Lucretia as his assistant lighting designer uh, at the old Du Maurier. And Astrid Jansen was the set designer. And um, yeah, it was kind of uh, a remarkable experience. I'd never done opera before. I'd never, you know. And Ken Chan was the assistant production manager at the time. So I ended up meeting actually in that show quite a few people that I ended up working with again later and not knowing at the time of course as this business goes you meet somebody and they're doing one job and then you meet them later and they're doing another job or you're doing a different job so um yeah and then Michael Levine responded to one of my you know cold faxes and he said well I'm not in Toronto right now I'm in New York but if you're ever down here and then it turns out one of my uh good buddies from U of A Georgia Lee uh was down doing her MFA at Yale. And so it was a great opportunity. Toronto to New York's not a big jump. And so I went down to, uh, stayed with Georgia and Connecticut and took the train in and, you know, um, went to meet with Michael for a bit. And he said, well, yeah, you can come back in February and work for me for, um, I'll pay you in Canadian dollars and you can just come down here and hang out in the studio and do some work. Mm -hmm. So, so that was how I got working with Michael Levine and then, you know, so, and you get Michael Levine's name on your CV and people really go, oh, that, well, that must be a good assistant because, you know, or that's somebody who can build a model because, <laughs> you know, so um, that went a long way for me. Uh, and I mean, we, we haven't quite got to your first big like design break mm. yet, um, but it, was it after you went to Stratford? Or did you, were you designing before you went I was to designing before. I okay. had done a show in Peterborough. Randy Reed hired me to oh, work for I his company. <laughs> for his company oh out God. in Peterborough. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I guess that was about the same time I started at Stratford. I started at Stratford fairly soon after I moved to Toronto. Yeah. Um, so I was doing... Um, so what ended up happening, How I, this, it's interesting how I got my gig at Stratford too. That's a good story. Um so I'd interviewed with Doug and Alex and they didn't have a spot, but they'd keep me in mind should something come up, right? And I'm thinking, who's going to give up a gig at Stratford? Nobody's going to give up a gig at Stratford. So it turns out somebody gave up an assistant gig because they decided not to come back or whatever. And so they were trying to call me. And this was, again, before cell phones. So I had a pager. And I'd had my pages. I'd called Bell and said, going to New York for whatever, five, ten days or something like that. I can't remember now. And because uh, I was going down to work with Michael. And um, so, and I hadn't received any pages while I was in New York. And I thought, oh, that's a bit weird, but whatever. And um, when I got back, no, I was check. I went to an internet cafe in New York City to check my email and I had an email there from Stratford, from Alex, going, we're trying to get a hold of you. We've been paging you. We called your home line. Um, uh, somebody's, we're looking for an assistant for a show. And I'm like losing my mind because now five days have gone by, right? And so I called Alex and I said, from New York, like putting the change into the machine. And I'm saying, um, yeah, of course I'm interested. Yeah, yeah. And she said, well, we didn't hear back from you. So we gave it to somebody else. We offered it to somebody else. And I'm going, I'm going to lose my mind. So I'm on the phone. I call Bell and I just like lose my mind, right? I'm thinking like, how could you, you've ruined my career. Uh, 
like the melodrama of of your you know early twenties losing your this this has ruined your career because you'll um, never get an offer from Stratford I'm, again. No, right? no one's ever going to offer me no. another gig ever because yeah. I'm such a goof up. I didn't get my page. Um, turns out they had rerouted my pages all to L.A. So somebody in L.A. was getting all these pages. Oh. <laughs> and so I said I insisted that they write the Stratford Festival a letter explaining what had happened, that I was not an absolute fuck up. And so I don't know if they ever did or not, but I was I was so, so heartbroken because yeah. I thought I'd missed my big chance ever. Yeah. And um, so Alex was so kind she said well you know if they don't accept it um the offer i'll come back to you and i thought right (laughs) so i'm in my 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 studio apartment in toronto just off the danforth and um i'm reading titus andronicus in my apartment weeping because I'm never going to get to do this show. But what if they call? Then at least I'll have read the play. But it's never going to happen. I'm so demoralized. And the phone rings. And it's Alex. And she says, so, if you still want it. Um, and so I got to go with this Charlotte Dean at the Stratford Festival. Nice. Yeah. Uh, and it will come to no surprise to listeners of the title block that... Um, that, that not that first year, but the next year, there yeah. was a, there was a turnover in the other assistants, and you started to work with you were part of this team with Dana Osborne, yeah, Lorenzo Savoini, Michael Jefrancesco, and Sarah Armstrong, Sarah Armstrong, and Katka Hubachek, Katka Hubachek, yeah, like all all of which, every single one of you have sort of broken out into incredible, like yeah. very successful design careers, yeah, from that cohort. It's incredible. Yeah, uh, and we've spoken to Michael on the show. We've spoken to uh, we've spoken to Dan on the show. We've spoken to Lorenzo. Sarah Armstrong is a friend, but I have not spoken to her on the show. Mm-hmm. She's working in film now. Yeah, uh, very successful. So that's crazy. Like that's a that's a that's an intense year working yeah. with such fantastic people. Uh, you obviously among them. Um, what did you do at Stratford? Like, how did you? We how did you fare? Uh, I think I fared fairly well in the sense I I. Uh, I was with, uh, it was a great group of assistants. I got to work with amazing designers. And I think that was in the, so it was the year 2000 to, two, I was there from 2000, 2003. I took a break and then I went back for one more season. So I did four seasons in total over five years. And um, I met so many people that I made a lot of work with over the years. Um, and I, you know, I sort of look back on that. That time was a bit, it's kind of golden in its own way. Um, Cause I met a lot of designers that I then ended up Astrid and um, who I didn't assist at Stratford, but I worked with later. Um, and then, yeah, those young design assistants that we were at the time, right. They're now colleagues. They're always been colleagues and peers. And um, I admire the work that they're doing and, and where they've been and, and, you know, the successes and had lots of phone conversations with Lorenzo and, you know, um, haven't seen as much of Michael Gianfrancesco as I'd love to, but, you know, Facebook friends with Katja and, uh, and all that stuff. So it's fun to, to see where everybody's gone and, and what we're doing. And there's some funny stories from those days of like, you know, um, somebody from one, one opening night, somebody, (laughs) 
we were all drinking in the design studio way late at night and uh, somebody spilt some coffee. It was somebody from admin who was visiting the design studio and spilt some coffee on Peter Hartwell's white card model. And it was literally like design assistant triage emergency emergency like we all sobered up immediately and Lorenzo running around going get phone books we need phone books and Michael going flatten it flatten it and and you know Dana getting paper towel and um and we're stacking stuff on top of the you know and knowing that Peter's gonna lose it when he comes in in the morning like and why and rightfully so to a certain extent so and he did And, you know, he's going on and on about our ineptitude and and sort of, you know, and finally, I think I called him on it and sort of said, said, well, what would you have done? You know, like, we fixed it at least. Um, And I'm like, and you're going to paint it like it's fine. (laughs) He he. I, I, uh, I've had great uh, mentorship moments with Peter as well, like Peter Hartwell's. I would consider him a mentor for sure. And he, he sort of, you know, one day looked at me, and was like, you know, you got a lot of tenacity and, and <laughs> coming from Peter, that's like high praise. Right. Um, so yeah, there's some pretty good, you know, um, funny moments that happened. Yeah. That's terrific. All right. So Stratford happens like in many ways, a center of the uh, one of the centers of the theater universe in Canada, mm-hmm. uh, and then your first big a house break comes not long after that, right? Yeah, sort of in the middle. Yeah. Um, and I, I was taking a, a year away from Stratford and was in Toronto and you know gigging like we all do. And I did lots of corporate events. That was I worked with um, Brock Lumsden. Uh, who who was a theater designer for a number of years and just a really lovely guy. And, you know, we used to laugh hysterically uh, and we still do. We're still really good friends um, at all kinds of gigs. And, uh, you know, I get a phone call out of the blue um, from Michael Levine saying, you know, um, there's a designer friend of his that's fallen ill and do I know Ken Garnum? And, he can't finish this show in Calgary and could you do it? And would you be interested? And I think you and Ken would get along like a house on fire. And um, so, and then saying April call, you need to call Ian Prinsloo. And so <laughs> called Ian and then talked to Richard Rose. And I had just finished assisting on a show, two shows in two years on that Richard was directing at Stratford. And so had taken over from Graham when his mother passed away. So Richard knew I was competent um, and he trusted me. To take the show from Ken and and make it happen at Theatre Calgary. And so that was a big break for me. Um, you know, it's one of those instances where people say, so many cliches, like, be ready. You know, you never know when the, you know, when the call's going to come and you're going to have to be ready to sort of, like, go to the next step or take the next gig. And so that's literally what happened. And, you know, it was unfortunate circumstances, but it was an opportunity for me. Um, oh, sorry, what was the show? It, it was uh, Fire. Right. Um, with Jeffrey, Jeffrey Pouncett and oh. Mike Ross were playing the two lead roles. That's great. I, would, I, I worked at George Brown with Jeffrey. Yeah. He was there um, back in the late 90s when I was working there as a designer. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. That's um, an awesome. Yeah. Choice. And it was, it, was, uh, it was challenging. It was my first time in an A house. Um, and, you know, 
I was still a young designer. I wasn't, you know, I mean, you earn your stripes somehow, right? We we all do. So, um, and then Richard offered me a show at Tarragon um, the following season. So, and then that sort of, you know, gets, gets things moving along. And then you get in, you're already established in Toronto as a designer, but now you're working all the kind of re, like the a houses and not a houses, but the well a houses the 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 main like yeah, producers like it, of new works some, in Toronto, right? Yeah, Caribbean factory. Interesting by. work, yeah. right? Yeah. And and working with, um, you know, I got to work with Rosemary Dunsmore mm-hmm. doing doing a few shows. Some at George, one at George Brown, another one at Factory in the Backspace, and you know the usual the circuit of you know contemporary theater in toronto uh and you also worked is this you were at castleloma doing stuff was brock doing stuff at castleloma no it wasn't with brock actually i got uh the game and i'm just interested because it's castleloma with this (laughs) giant like ridiculous mansion (laughs) castle thing in toronto yeah so every Every Christmas at that time, I don't know if they're still doing it. At that time, they were doing a Christmas pantomime-ish kind of kid show. And um, so one year, it was a company called Wolf Works that was run by a guy whose name I can't remember right now. But he hired a friend of mine who I'd worked with with Brock um, at Fireworks Marketing Group. So Talia Rosales, who was a production manager um, for corporate gigs. And so he hired her to sort of work on this thing. And she said, what we really need here is a designer. And because we were friends, she said, you should come and do this Christmas gig. And so we went and did it. And we did crazy things. Like we, so we, not only did we do the pantomime, we then also agreed, (laughs) like pitched this idea that we were going to do decorating in other parts of the castle. So we had like a Judy dress form that was like, having Rigeline going all around it with fish line and these little birds. And we were there till like three o'clock in the morning, gluing at Casa Loma, thinking I'm going to be haunted by yeah, ghosts. Yeah. And I'm gluing, you know, fucking little Tweety Bird things to these, <laughs> these, this bits of Rigeline and burning my fingers yeah. and thinking this is not worth it. Like why on earth? And then the next morning going in and, and literally this is where children's theater I just went, this is where the magic happens. Like there were three little girls who might've been five years old sitting in the front row who just lost their minds when Cinderella came out in the, you know, ball gown rented from Stratford for three weeks for, you know, whatever, about 40 bucks. And they just like changed how I saw the magic in that moment, right? With my burnt fingers and my up till three in the morning. Can't believe I'm doing this shit. Yeah. It kind of harkens back to your own first experience about how did that, how did they get all those houses on stage? Yeah. And who's that hairy guy? I know. Totally. totally. It's like a completely connected. Yeah. And they're, you know, unfiltered response of like the magic of this. Right. So, um, so we ended up doing the, the pantomime. Talia got hired again the next year. and We ended up, doing the pantomime again and, and different kinds of decorations. We built this huge dinosaur tail in the pool. Do you remember the pool in Casa Loma? I, okay, like so the unfinished pool? This is the part where I, uh, where I admit that I've never been in Casa Loma in Toronto. Oh, wow. Okay, so down in the basement, there's an unfinished pool. Oh, God. Oh, 
Okay. So it's just a cement pit, right. basically. It's weird. Like it a, was never finished. Never finished with a graded floor. Yeah. So it should have had marble finishing and all that stuff. And it has these, this beautiful arcade of columns on one, on two sides. Right. And, um, it's gorgeous. And it's like, if you could vision it, but it looks like a dungeon cause it's just a, just bare cement. Yeah. Right. And it's dusty and nobody goes in there and whatever. So we, <laughs> we went in and built this giant, um, dragon tail that out of chicken wire and, and, you know, muslin and glue. And we just built it in place, this giant dragon tail. So it looked like there was a dragon that was living inside this, right? It was great. And, um, the next year we had a huge giant, uh, dragon head that we built and had, you know, sort of like a silk tongue and flames inside of it and hanging. It was behind a scrim with, so it looked like and camo net and stuff in front of it, right? And kids coming in and they couldn't see the dragon. And then all of a sudden, roar, and the, like the flashing lights and the tongue and the, you know, so we had, yeah, there was some really fun, fun kind of moments at Casaloma. That's awesome. Any secret passages that you found where you were Casaloma? No, but I, I ended up working with Larissa, who then became the producer of uh, Theater by the Bay in Barrie. Right. And later ended up working with her and Richard Rose again on a Shakespeare piece that they were doing up there. So it was one of those kind of funny connections. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay, great. Um, and then your career takes off. I mean, you've worked all over the country. Yeah, I took a pause, right? I, I got to... Uh, maybe 2005 and was feeling hmm, what's the word I'm looking for it wasn't exactly burnout but it was also like I needed I need a recharge in a way um, it's grueling as you know yeah. right the freelance gigging and gigging and gigging and sort of paycheck to paycheck and I did some really interesting work with interesting people and I don't regret any of that. Um, I have arthritis. And so I found the physical challenge of, you know, hauling those costumes around and, you know, taking rabbit ears and bunny tails and stuff like that on the TTC. Um, you know, that I paid a price for that physically, I think. Um, and so I got to about 2005 and started thinking about what am I going to do next? What, you know, kind of taking stock of a few things. And I had a bike accident. I think that that actually was the thing that made me think, because I had to stop for a bit. Um, I had fallen off my bike. My front wheel got caught in a streetcar track. And, you know, classic. That's, the exact same thing happened to me in 2005. Really? Yeah. I at College in Dundas when it was like... It was on Queen Street. I was uh, working at YPT. And I, was, I was cycling to the factory to do a call. I, I yeah. had come back from paramedic school and I was working in town pulling gigs and I broke my hand I broke my left wrist that's crazy I broke my right the la- my right uh, fifth metatarsal and weren't you glad I'm a streetcar wasn't coming <clears throat> there are no tarsals I'm in the fucking are you a doctor school. I'm a doctor in your hand <laughs> they're, they're called carpal bones not tarsal bones I broke my fifth metacarpal on my right hand yeah in a streetcar track in a bicycle I punched a cab basically like on a oh it was not, it's not fun. No. It's dangerous. No. So I went over the handlebars. Oh no. Cause my front wheel stopped and I went over the handlebars and thankfully there were TTC workers, um, who saw the whole thing happen. Yeah. And thankfully there wasn't a streetcar coming and some, I don't know, some good Samaritan in a 
white car, yeah. don't know his name, don't know anything, um, pulled over, helped me get my bike to the side of the road and like smashed a whole bunch of like, <laughs> I don't know, Harvey's napkins <laughs> on my face <laughs> to like staunch the bleeding. Cause I, and I ended up with stitches above my eye and, uh, yeah. So I had to take a break and a pause and, uh, you know, uh, couldn't really, I was on my way to be interviewed for a film. And to, to work in the art department because I was an apprentice member of the DGC. And I couldn't do the gig because I, I was injured. And um, yeah, it, so, and, and while I was having that pause and thinking about, okay, so what am I going to do now? And, when, you know, and I was assisting Danny Lynn um, and uh, at the COC. And I was assisting on two shows with the COC. So we were doing Macbeto and Rotolinda. Um, and... Uh, yeah, so that was sort of in that time frame. And I thought about going back to grad school. And so um, U of A took me and I went and uh, I moved to, so I moved to Edmonton in 2006 mm -hmm. to do an MFA. That's crazy. Uh, and it's, uh, it certainly has paid off because you're now working. It paid off the because I, yeah, now I'm chair of drama at the University of Calgary. Yeah. We'll get to that in a little okay. bit. Uh, but let's just look at some of the highlights here from the past um, 15 years after you did your MFA. Because um, you worked with a bunch of terrific companies across Canada. Uh, you're at the Globe in 2007. Mm -hmm. Yep. I love the Globe. Working with Jeffrey Wynott, uh, who is awesome. Um, Workshop West. So this is all in the West because you were out, you had moved, did you move out to Alberta then after you did yeah, the I MFA? Moved, yeah, so I moved to Alberta in 2006 to do an MFA there. And so I graduated from my MFA in 2008. Mm -hmm. So I was working, I was working a bit while doing my MFA as well. So I went out to the Globe to do, I did a couple of shows with the Globe in that time period. Um, then um, worked with Workshop West on new new pieces obviously and um was on their board uh for a year and then i got the job in calgary and so then moved to calgary so after i i think i was in edmonton for about four years and um sort of uh two years doing an mfa and two years freelancing taught sessionally with u of a at the same time as as working i got lots of work in alberta when i got back worked at the citadel um Shadow Theater, uh, and did some shows with my good buddy Kevin Sutley uh, with Kill Your Television. And um, yeah, I've, Alberta's been really good to me. And so then when I moved to Calgary, um, I did a, I've, since I've been in Calgary, I've been here nine years now. Um, and I've worked with Alberta Theater Projects and Theater Calgary primarily I'd say those two companies and Vertigo Theater and I've had a great time with all of them you know um so Calgary's Calgary's been good to me too I'm constantly impressed by the um open arms that uh Albertan Theater has for people from outside now you're you're from you grew up in you're born in Edmonton grew up in yeah. Saskatoon but I did the Black Rider back here in 2004 and it was like it was like I had never, it was like I was from here. Yeah. Everyone was so, no, it wasn't like Toronto at all. 
which it can be very difficult yeah. for people coming into Toronto from outside to yeah. sort of break into that kind of cliquey. You know, part of it's because comp- of competition, but it's also mm-hmm. it's also. I found like, Vancouver harder though. Yeah, like I. That's not surprising. I've, I've done some work in yeah. Vancouver, um, mostly corporate work, but even trying to, you know, um, while I was there and I'd spent months there. Uh, at a time or weeks at a time trying to get in and and so I did I did do some theater in Vancouver with um, um, I'm gonna blank on their name uh, Barb Tomasic uh, directing a, a piece by uh, Tracy Power and uh, back to you and then that toured around a bit um, went to PTE after uh, we did three stops somewhere in the Vancouver area. And then, um, yeah, but Vancouver was a harder scene. For me, I found it a harder scene to sort of break into. And and I don't... Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't hard. It was harder than Toronto. And maybe I also was... Uh, had a little less hustle than when I moved to Toronto, right? And I was really hustling. I also think there's probably less work in Vancouver than there is in Toronto. Few people sort of, there's like, at some point, when I came to Toronto in the early 90s, there were something like 100 producing companies in yeah. Toronto. And I mean, some of them were small, some of them were big, but there was always something you could do. Yeah. And in Vancouver, I think the market is smaller. And I think especially um, after the recession in the early 2000s, it became, people were much more protective. Well, the, I especially think after the Playhouse closed. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, so I, th- I also think... Um, like Vancouver, the theater community is smaller, but it's what else are you going to do in Va- Vancouver? You can do so many other things than go to the theater, right? Like you can be out late and or be up early cycling or mountain climbing or you know doing all kinds of great outdoor things. Um, whereas in Toronto, well, what the hell else are you going to do in the wintertime? You, you could ride the vomit comet. <laughs> At three o'clock you, in the morning, coming back from the bar. That's always you a good can. time. <laughs> you can. You could be at Betty's until who knows what time, right? Come on. <laughs> uh, back in the day of the booze can. Oh, those are the days. I'm sure booze cans still happen, but I don't go to them. Let's look at things that uh, that you did that were in, that uh, got some awards. So The Last Days of Judas Iscariot uh, by Birdland yeah. Theatre, working with David Ferry, who's a personal favorite of mine. Yeah. Um, tell me about that show. That was in the Tank House, like, just... In the middle of the renovation, this is the this is the distillery it was, district. It was district. after the. Re- I think it, I'm pretty sure it was after the renovation. Okay. Um, like, well, okay, it wasn't converted oh, into a theater. No, you're right. Yeah, it was um, just prior, so yeah. it was empty, but um, they had poured. It had a level floor finally, because the first time I had seen the tank house, it hadn't. They hadn't poured a new floor into it, and I know it had the new floor by then, um, like the leveled laser leveled concrete floor um oh because i know why because i had i had worked with astra jansen on that on the film in there before Uh, the leveled floor so let's just back up and talk about that that was shadow pleasures yes Um, handwriting into dance tell me about that experience because that's film yeah but uh it was with veronica tennant was dance right it was dance for camera so um veronica uh had this idea to um, to look at five pieces by Michael Ondaatje, and they were some of them were pieces that were already created, and then she was going to shoot them on film and create a a film 
of Dance on Camera with Michael Andachi's work. And so Astrid was hired as the designer and uh, she asked if I would assist her. And I said, yeah, sure. So <laughs> Astrid and I spent that, that summer um, in her car. <laughs> we spent so much time in her car driving around looking for stuff or collecting stuff and bursting out into like laughter hysterics in tears uh, laughing so hard, usually at about three o'clock in the afternoon when we were like desperate for food um, or a coffee or something. And uh, we worked with, um, I can't remember his last name, Mario, who was our prop guy. Um, so it's basically the three of us. And then, you know, I don't know, on any given day, three to six PAs um, doing everything. Um, That's a bit nuts. We were the art department. Like, yeah. So it was an indie film, right? Yeah, sure. And, um, <laughs> and silly things. Like, so we shot one, uh, one dance piece um, with Andrea Nan was, was in the distillery tank house. Um, that was the day that we, the blackout happened. And of course the grips were running around saying, Oh, it's the art department. They covered all the, they covered up all the exit signs. And so now the, now the power's got out and, and it was like, no, the power's out on the entire Eastern seaboard. I don't think it had anything to do with us. Um, so, <laughs> so, you know, uh, and then, and then, um, the next piece was shot at the, um, What's the name of it right now? I'm blanking on the name of the theater, but it was the it's the ballet uh, schools theater. Oh, the Betty O. Yes, the Betty, the Betty o. o. Thank you. There yeah. was an O in it, and so we shot there. Um, had to fill it, create a sand pit with water and rain on stage, and um, so trying to coordinate with the grips using some of their grip stands to connect this Lee Valley system that I'd borrowed from Ray Salverda. Yeah. To, to attach to this thing and make it rain and they were like why didn't you just rent the movie gear and I said because we don't have we can't afford the movie gear so we're going to do it this way and I'm soaking wet and uh, we have a generator running the power because you know only emergency services were supposed to be going to work and so of course the film was shooting and <laughs> you know it was it was crazy yeah. times but uh, great times and Astrid won the won the Gemini yeah that's nuts. I was on a beach, by the way, when that happened. I was down in uh, Port, Port something, Port Stanley. It's one of or those something. like nine eleven. Where were you on nine eleven? Where were you at? I know uh, we had an opening. Where night. were you during the blackout? Yeah, we. I was at an opening night for Fingers and Toes, a musical theater production. I think I've talked about this on the show. And Fingers and Fingers toes. and Toes, a musical theater production of something. It was really fun, actually. It was lots of fun. We were doing a little tour, and uh, it was like a little review. And the uh, you know I got woken up and. Oh, there's no show tonight because the power's out. So we all went to the beach. It was delightful. It's a great idea. Yeah, exactly. It's the best opening night ever. Um, let's talk about um, let's talk about the Judas Iscariot show. So David Ferry, this was in this was a build your own space kind of thing. Is there was no grid or power? Yeah. There yet, so or? so Glenn Davidson was doing the set, yes. and so and <laughs> Glenn and David co-designed uh, the lighting, yeah. um, which was all. Lots of it done by the cast with flashlights and water bottles and I get, there were desk lamps and things like that. And I was doing the costumes. Um, and we... None of this is sour grapes because I am really uh, grateful for having done that piece. Um, and I learned 
a, a couple of professional lessons on that show. Um, and um, one of them was, I was one of the young designers who had signed on with Christopher Banks earlier in my career than others right and um you know he said to me when I signed on with him that uh, you know you're the first young designer in nine years that I've signed on and that worked out great for me because I got lots of gigs that I think I wouldn't have (laughs) because other more senior designers turned them down or something and so Chris had had a line on them right um Judas Iscariot can't I can't remember how it came to me I think I met with David and and we had an interesting conversation and we, you know, we, we liked each other well enough and he hired me to do the gig. And, um, we, uh, it was gonna, it started out as a workshop and I remember not having, uh, uh it was like a letter of agreement, not a formal contract or anything because it was going to be a workshop. And then performances were added so that the door committee could come and then the Dora committee was coming, but the budget wasn't increasing. And, the, you know, so it was kind of one of those where, you know, you just go along for the ride, right? And so because it was going to be a workshop production, neither Chris nor I at that time worried about the billing. So wait for this one. So get my coffee, my whatever, and I'm heading down on the subway and I see on my way to rehearsal these giant subway posters and in like 12 inch tall letters directed by David Ferry set designed by Glenn Davidson and at the very bottom of the poster about half an inch tall is costume design by April Vitsko and sound design by Nicholas Murray, I think his last name was. And um, I I was so hurt, um, but I was also really angry. Part of the anger was because I was so hurt. Um, and, and I didn't know what to do, mm-hmm. you know? So I called a couple of mentors and said, like, what the hell do I do? Mm-hmm. And one of them said, you have to leave the show. There's just, like, how can you... You've got to leave. And then another mentor, uh, Astrid Jensen, actually, sat down and she said, we were having lunch, and I said, I just, I don't know what to do. And she looked at me and she said, you do your job. And you get the door nomination. That's what you do. Um, And it was a gig with, you know, really great named actors. It was a good show, right? It was a really good show. Um, and so that's what I did. I just did my job and, and she was like, you can't, your career has to be bigger than, than your billing, you know? Um, and you'll, this will be one show, you know? Um, but it was a good lesson for me in terms of, you know, show going from workshop to production to, oh my God, the door committee's coming. So that, um, that's for me the big, the you know when when people talk about oh Judas Iscariot, it was a fantastic show and it was magical. It was one of those shows where, um, you know, as a costume designer, often opening night happens and I'm on to the next gig, 
But even though I was on to the next gig, I was at every performance um, because you just wanted to be in the room because it was magic. There was magic. And, you know, David managed uh, uh, to create an atmosphere of magic Mm -hmm. in that show. And, you know, I I don't regret a minute of that. That's a great story. I think it's interesting that... um like uh, in other in other businesses, it's all about the money. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's not all about the money. No, but you're yeah. well comp- you're compensated, and there's a certain expectation that you get paid a certain amount of money, and whether there's a contract or whatever. But in theater, where there's so much more on the line, your reputation, your name, your pro- people are looking at your art and commenting mm-hmm. on it, and re- reviewers, um, billing is such it's a personal thing. It's a personal mm-hmm. thing. Right? We take it very personally, mm-hmm. even though, you know. The audience may not worry about it, but I mean, all the fights that I've heard about through the um, the design forum, yeah, and through people's past experience with companies that have been bad, it's all about billing. They left me off this notice, they left me out of the program, left me out of you know, yep. I wasn't billed the same as the director, and it seems like such a petty thing, but you don't have like there's nothing else. I mean, you're doing the work. But, but if you don't get the credit, yeah. it, it's really, and, and what I guess was painful about that experience for me was that somebody, somebody chose, somebody made that decision, yeah. right? Yeah. Somebody said, yeah, it's okay that we're giving this person, that we're giving the set designer bigger billing. And like by bigger billing, I mean, you know, 11 inches yeah. of space on a subway poster, um, better billing. Yeah. Right. And, and that's, that was, it's probably the most extreme example I've ever heard, um, in Canadian theater, like, you know, around of, of bad, bad choice in, in, in how they treated the designers uh, on that billing clause. I always found it, I mean, I don't want to go on too much about this, but I always found it interesting that, um, like you talk to people who do marketing, they go, but the poster's only so big. Mm-hmm. The postcard's only so big. I can only fit so much information on you. are like, well, film yeah. does it. Film yeah. puts like 20 people at the bottom of the thing, yeah. including the production manager and the, uh, yeah. you know, and the I, location manager and all that other stuff. Like, I spent a lot of time with, so in my time with ADC, I spent a lot of time on, on the contracts committee. And then also spent, you know, I was the the lead negotiator on the last version of the contract. And um, we spent a lot of time on that billing clause. And, you know, the new billing clause, I think, is exceptional compared to what we've had in the past, recent past. Um, And part of the conversation across the table with PACT is simply going you need to give recognition to these people. And so, you know, and they go, and and where we're winning now is that a lot of the marketing isn't, isn't on paper. Mm-hmm. And so there's, it costs them nothing. Mm-hmm. It costs no more. And with digital printing, it's not like the old days of like, somebody had to be there to letter set yeah. every single letter on the printing press. Yeah. Um, you know, we're talking... Uh, you know, it's a matter of of points, and it's a drop down menu on the computer, and it's an easy choice. So, you know, but with websites now, it was a real battle to try and get us on websites, and so now it's in the clause. You just they have to do it, yeah. and so end of story. Just do it, 
And, you know, so where there's no character limitation, the designer's name must appear if the director's name is there. Yeah. End of story. Done. Like, just... Just do it. Just do it. And, and sh- it shows that you're thinking about the design team that's creating the visual picture, right? Um, okay, so uh, we're about to take a break, but I want to cover a couple more things that were award-winning in your thing, because I think it's interesting... Uh, to talk about some of these shows. Um, let's talk about um, uh, Hello, Hello. Oh, Hello, Hello. So Hello, Hello was my first opportunity to work with Kill Your Television. Mm-hmm. Um, I had worked with Kevin Sutley going to school with him. Um, but And it was my first time working on a Karen Hines piece. And... Uh, we just, I sort of, when I worked with Kevin, we came up with this uh, theory of working together uh, when we were in school and, and I'd kind of panic about what he was going to think and what he was, and he'd say, everything is shit until we decide it's not April. Like everything, everything is shit till we decide it's not. And so that really, uh, that actually was a, a gift because it sort of th- freed me up to sort of just throw stuff at him and hope, you know, until we decided it wasn't crap. It was good. So so that's how Kevin and I work. We just keep throwing ideas around at each other and and, and make it work. So we decided in the end that we were going to put Hello, Hello in a Gap ad. And <laughs> so it was in this white box um, with a white little runway that jutted out over the edge of the stage. And everybody was going to be in stylish shades of gray. And... Um, that's how we did the gig and it was great. Uh, and I thought it looked beautiful. Um, and it was a really well done production. And then, um, Karen Hines actually saw that show, that production and really liked it. And so when she was doing drama at ATP, I got to be the costume designer for drama, uh, a pilot episode, uh, which is a fantastic play, um, that Blake Brooker directed. And, uh, I think it was it was a I'm a big fan of Karen's writing, but um, and she and I, I think, see costume design in a very similar way. Um, and so that was really, really rewarding to sort of see that that payoff later. And then I worked with Kill Your Television on um, Victor and Victoria's Terrifying Tale of Terrible Things, yes. which was co-written by Nathan Kakao and Beth Graham. So uh Beth, I knew from my U of A days as well. She, we were at school together, and Nathan, I met through Kill Your Television, and um, that little play, this little this little fringe play. So I was, I tell my students, don't do fringe unless you really like the people, because fringe is too hard. It's too hard to do fringe unless you really like the people you're working with. So I did fr- a fringe gig with with. Uh, Beth and Nathan and Kevin and you know just doing this little one-off thing thinking whatever's going to happen right and it's a story of two these twins um who love scaring each other and they they tell each other spooky stories um and it's a really inventive and imaginative kind of place so then it goes to New York City and then it's you know been across the country it's been to Calgary it's been um so it kind of took off and had its own it's had its own life um these little the show of little twins That's awesome. Uh, you did, you got a Sterling nomination for Garage Alec with yep. my personal hero, Ron Jenkins, who we've interviewed on the show. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. I, I, was like too, <laughs> I was like, I didn't talk to a director about design. 
And I like hanging out with Ronnie, so let's have a little conversation with Ron Jenkins. So we had a, so people can find that in the in right. the in the list. But um uh uh, any any remembrance about it was uh, what's Village so Garage Garage Alec was Village Theater with Tracy Powers and uh, Tracy Power and uh, Brian Dooley had their company and they produced Garage Alec and Garage Alec was half in English half in French and it's about this young woman whose car breaks down and uh, she she's in the middle of Quebec and she goes to this mechanic's place and he doesn't speak English and she doesn't speak French and they kind of figure out make this thing work to get her car fixed and get her back on the road. Um, so we, we did that one. And it was funny when um, I, I love working with Ron Jenkins. Um, we've done a few things together. First, I worked with him first while I was doing my MFA on what the Butler saw. Yeah. And I did costumes for that show. And Ron has amazing timing. And then, so I worked on garage elect with Ron and then I did uh, true love lies at Citadel with Ron. And what I love about working with Ron is he makes my work better, right? So Ron's not afraid or not. He's never an asshole about it. He just looks at you and goes, this isn't working. And you go, yeah, it's not working. You know, and sometimes you can go to Ron, I don't know, you know, on True Love Lies, the dress didn't get a laugh. The dress is supposed to get a laugh. And we thought it was the funniest thing. And we thought it was perfect. And, you know, first preview, no laugh. Right? And I'm looking at him at the note session after and going, I don't I don't know why that dress didn't get a laugh. Like, do you know why this dress didn't get a laugh? Can you give me a bit more context? Like, what's supposed to so be funny the, about so it? So it's supposed to be funny. The, the daughter comes down in this dress that she's going to go out in and the brother's sort of like oh it's not your nipples your aureole are showing and you're you know like it so it's it's got to be the right dress that's not it's slightly trashy but and there's got to be a way into it so it's got to be and the mother goes you're not going out in that and she's like oh yes i am and so but it didn't get a laugh and it should get a laugh. The minute she walks out, there should be a laugh. And, uh, we didn't get the laugh. And so looking at Ron and going, I don't know why that dress didn't get a laugh. And he's like, thank God you said that. I was worried about what I was going to say to you. And I was like, what, that the dress didn't get a laugh. Like that was so obvious. So, you know, but he's, he, I don't think every director, you wouldn't have the conversation that way. Um, and so I think what's exciting about working with Ron is he, is he just, he's not afraid to push and push and push and push and push until it is so good that you can't even imagine how good a work you ended up doing. Like you just go, and that happened on Garage Alec. Like the set was not working and it was an indie show we had, you know, and we didn't have enough money and we didn't have. And so finally Ron just looks at it and goes, goes April. We're just going to cover the whole thing in that corrugated tin. And I'm like, oh, my God, we don't have any more money, but that's a brilliant idea. And he goes, okay, how much more money do we need? I'm like, 500 bucks. He's like, let's do it. So we go over to <laughs> Brian and Tracy, and we're like, we need 500 more dollars. And he convinces them that's a great idea. And so they do it, and we do it. Yeah. And we're all there till way too late figuring this out. And when we got <laughs> the Sterling nomination i called him and i said can you believe that 
that got nominated? And he said, well, no, actually, it looked really good in the end. And I said, it was an act of desperation, not a design. And he just howled on the other end. And he was like, yeah, but it was brilliant. <laughs> so it was kind of one of those, you know, uh, moments of, I guess it paid off at the end. One of the, But yeah. Hi there, yeah, I know this interview is going really well, but before you skip ahead, just shuffle over to the show notes if you could and click on the link to the Patreon page for the title block. It does cost money to produce this time capsule of theater design history, and for a couple of bucks an episode, you can ensure that I can continue to put out great interviews with designers like April Vixco. Go to patreon.com slash the title block podcast and donate now. Thank you for your help. Uh, great. So we've talked about most of, first of all, I have to stop saying great, but moving on. <laughs> great. So now we have to talk, we, we talk about a couple more things and we'll talk about the ADC. Um, uh, True Love Lies. Awesome. Uh, Ash, Ash Risen. Ash Risen. Um, because we haven't talked about ATP and, uh, we haven't talked about ATP on the show a lot. So what was your experience working with them? And Ash Risen got a betting nomination. So that's pretty great. It's a musical. It, it did. It got an. It's a rap musical. Awesome. Um, that was written by um, uh, Michael P. Notley. Notley. Oh, I might have that wrong. Um, and Kiprios. So, um, wow, that was a. It was a. That was a challenging one, um, in some ways because. Um, it's a rap musical uh, with a whole bunch of white people in it that, uh, like, I think even now, only five years later, would be cast differently. Um, maybe not. And um, this was one of those ones where, like, the whole design team goes out for dinner during tech week, and we realize, oh, we're all doing a different show. Uh-huh. Right. So the conversation with the playwright and director for one designer was quite different than the conversation with other designers. And so, you know, uh, (laughs) we were all kind of doing a different show then. And it showed. But I think the I think the concept of the musical and, you know, it was directed and co-produced with um, Patrick McDonald and looking at. Uh, with the Green Thumb Theater. And so it was meant for youth. And for that, I think it was it was still a really good message and a good, um, a really great concept. And I thought Kiprios's music was really well done. Um, so, but it's interesting, working on playwrights um, and the Playwrights Festival um, is... It's an interest. It was an interesting, interesting experience. I mean, I grew up, grew up in my, you know, university days, hearing about playwrights and playwrights at ATP and the national, you know, and the Blitz event and you know all that stuff and and knowing about that, uh, you know, throughout your theater career and then finally getting an opportunity to design costumes for playwrights was really exciting, um, and working on those shows in rep. So I wasn't a stranger to rep because I'd worked at Stratford and had seen how that that machine can kind of work. Um, but designing for multiple shows in the rep situation and with limited, quite limited budgets, um, 
because they're new plays, they can change overnight and you would be given like wild times of like, you know, you'd walk in and there'd be a new script or new version of, or, oh, sorry, we eliminated that scene. We're putting another scene in. So you have to really, as a designer, especially a costume designer too, you have to be really flexible. Um, which means you, you're always kind of holding a piece of the budget back because you don't know <laughs> when when the next exciting idea is going to come out of the rehearsal hall um, from the playwright or from the director or things yeah. like that. So, Which means that your other ideas are kind of half realized because you're kind of like, is this one going to get cut? Yeah. How, am I, how can I design this to make sure I can change it? Yeah. So it's not, yeah. Yeah, and you're always thinking about, and, you know, Vanessa Porteous was the... Uh, artistic director at the time and you know she always described it and maybe others have as well but I heard it from her in terms of it's the best first production of this play that we can do right and so the pressure wasn't there for it to be you know the most perfect production (laughs) of of these plays but the best first production that we can do given given the context of the festival and the resources and the you know um and and sort of being there at the end, what turned out to be the end of Playwrights Festival, um, it was also interesting because it was showing its um, how it had become formula, right? right? How certain things had become uh, sort of formulaic in a way that you wouldn't expect new work, a new work festival to become, yeah. right? Um, and so it had run you you were seeing a festival that had a notion that had kind of run its course because of course when the the festival was created um not everybody was producing new canadian work and and putting it on a stage the size of the martha cohen um so you know yeah it's been an interesting it's been interesting watching atp recently um, you know, it's it's going through a lot of changes. So then I, I worked on the season after Playwrights as well and did Butcher with the Wayne Magesha. And, um, you know, that was a really good, I thought it was a very solid production. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, great. I think that <clears throat> you've, in the last couple of years, you've done another Kill Your Television show, RJ, yep. which got another Sterling nomination. Um and I think it's remarkable, or not remarkable, not remarkable, like outstanding remarkable, but it, it's good to remark upon the fact that you've built relationships yeah. with people and the ones that you've built the strongest relationships with, you're producing some of the yeah. best work, right? Yeah. And that's a, that's a good kind of career goal, I think, for somebody, for people who are just starting at the career listening to the show. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> so you just spoke with um, whom I hear is a fan of the show, Natalie Riwa. Yes. Uh, I'm author of uh, Scenography in Canada. Yes. Whew, got the title right, thank God. <clears throat> um, and who's from Queens. Yes. Uh, she just spoke to you about this great production you did at Banff. I was just in Banff on Friday. Wow. Let me tell you, <laughs> never been to Banff before, never driven into the mountains before. I was on, I'm just going to do a little digression here. I was on the phone sure. with my friend Shauna Miller, who's the production manager, or the production manager, the, t- the t- technical director at YPT, YPT in Toronto. And she was on the phone with me when I saw the first mountain, and I almost lost the plot in the car. <laughs> it's like, Shauna Miller, there's, they're giant. They're huge. I feel so small. <laughs> and they keep getting bigger. I can't believe this. This is why people go to Banff and don't come back. 
Anyways, you were in Banff. So I was in Banff. So I did my first residency in at the Banff Center in June. Um, and I got to work with the fantastic Kendra Fanconi, um, who I hadn't worked with before. And I don't know where she's been on my life, but I'm so glad I found her. And um, we worked on this piece. So her company is called The Only Animal. And we worked on a piece called Slime, written by Bernie Laverley. And we, we, you know, I sort of said to Kendra, well, I think, you know, the piece was about these young people slightly into the future who could speak animal languages. And so there was no difference between human language and animal language. We could, we were fluent in, you know, so these young actors spent quite a bit of time learning and listening to seal sounds and cormorant sounds and other animal sounds to really um, be able to sort of create these languages, right? And and uh, so they had workshopped this piece quite a bit before I came on board. Um, and I was, you know, a local designer that uh, she had heard about, Kendra had heard about, and, you know, we spoke on the phone and we liked each other you know, on the phone. And so she looked at my work online and she took the risk of, sure, let's, let's have you work on the show in Banff. So what we ended up doing is so exciting. And I, I'm still, I'm still processing this three week experience that I had, you know, Patsy Thomas is probably the best head of wardrobe in the country. Um, and I, I don't mean that disparagingly to any other head of wardrobe I've worked with, but um, Patsy is a remarkable uh, individual in terms of her her skill set and her um, understanding of how a wardrobe can work and how you can support the designer and the production and the vision all together and manage the budget and all that jazz. Um, and she puts together great teams, right? Judy Dowro has been working with her too for a number of years. And Judy is, is a powerhouse talent in terms of cutting and, and all of that. And really understands the human body um, in that sense. So here are these two, this dynamic team, um, powerful team of, of wardrobe. And then, and then there's this, the beauty of working at Banff in the summers, there's this army of you know, interns and uh, young people who just really want to hone the craft, right? Um, and so wig and makeup and and working with uh, Laura Lee and and that whole team and Elijah and, 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 you know, Matt in lighting. And so I got every department working on wardrobe in costume. So because we were working with high technology so we were we were creating the illusion of um animal and technology pieces being hybrid human bodies and so there were fish scales that were built onto painted you know so the scenic painters actually painted the body suits um with fish scales on them onto net that were then sewn to custom fit the body and then we had um uh, fiber optic panels sewn into the back of a costume um, wired by the projection team and some of the lighting team. 
figuring out how we're going to like pack these batteries into this costume. And, you know, of course, the fiber optics has no stretch and like all kinds of problems, um, but all kinds of interesting problems to solve. And we brought the 3D printer. Um, I took the 3D printer from here and loaned it to the Banff Center because we didn't have one in the theater department there yet. Theirs was still coming. And so we were 3D printing costume pieces. We you know, we also sampled printed chain mail because we could, because we were there, right? And um, we did, uh, really created a moment in that three-week space of an idea to me of what the wardrobe of the future looks like, you know, where there's not only fabric and um, textiles and hand-drafting, costume pieces but there's also technology and lighting and uh, manipulated sound that can come out of or you know headdresses made of feathers that have lights in them that the actor can control by movement you know and some of it was was really successful some of it was less successful um and what was beautiful about that was that Kendra was game for the ride so I think that that right now is what is holding Canadian theater back from embracing technology is that in, in a real sense of you need a creative team that's willing to take the risk and also willing to say, that's not working. We love the idea. We're going to shelve it and then carry on and do the show. Um, but we're going to try it. Right. And so the, beauty of working with the only animal is that they love prototypes and they love stuff that's half built and they Kendra doesn't mind trying it out in rehearsal and making the time for you to take your 15 minutes to just see if this is going to work and um so that was amazing that that to me was like I said I'm still trying to figure out what happened but it was it was an impressive experience. Um, Sorry. You know, and could it be done anywhere other than the BAM Center? I don't know. Um, you know, I it, it took a lot of resources. It took a lot of investment. But it also took that, that technical team that was willing to say, well, let's try it. You know, and so, and they weren't, there was less proprietaryism in terms of, well, I'm also prop, and I don't build props. You know, that kind of um, closed-mindedness that can get in the way of, of really trying something new. Uh, it is kind of... Uh, so I have a couple comments. Um, this idea that uh, that no idea... That the ideas are collectively owned mm. is a really important one. And again, we've spoken about this on the show a number of times about ego and how it enters the show and how it can drive some things that maybe aren't the best for collaborative work. Uh, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm just doing, uh, from my own experience right now, I'm just doing some team exercises here in Calgary uh, with my medical training, yeah. trying to work uh, because it's a very, it, for many years, forever, it's been a hierarchical approach where you've had like mm. a physician or physicians at the top and then you've had, you know, the 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 bedside nursing and then you've had RTs and, and the team has been very top-down led. And now it, because of patient safety and because of uh, better patient outcomes and no idea is wrong and one person can't know everything, the hierarchy has been flattened. Yeah. And uh, it's about just 
like keeping the goal in mind, which is, in my case, keeping this patient alive. In your case, is creating art that has a specific message. Yeah. And uh, the the idea of breaking down those barriers uh, and having everybody work towards a collective end and letting your egos aside sounds like a much better way of working, right? And and you produce a product that is and a healthier way oh, of working. Oh, it's way healthier. Um, yeah. I think you know, and I have to say that the create the whole the whole creative team on this show, right? So uh, James Coomer doing sound and and Shizuka Kai doing the these amazing um, props that were you know part puppet part, um, but made out of garbage bags and right making a making a, a polar bear kind of you know and uh, out of plastic and these really beautiful uh pieces of recycled art um you know and then the lights as well and and you know working with um uh the designer to try and figure out okay well how much light can we have and when does the uv paint gonna show and how does it like help me here you know and and you know at some point going that's that's beautiful you know, and I, I remember days of being in the theater in my early in my career, too, of thinking, you know, and, and in Toronto in that in a particular kind of scene where there's lots of egos in the room and people being afraid to tell each other it's beautiful, you know, like you didn't want to make a comment because heaven forfend you, you comment on somebody else's work, even if you were making a compliment. Or maybe it wasn't done yet. And you're yeah. like, oh, that's great. Oh, that's not what you're going for. Yeah. Right? So, so we're, you know. Uh, those stunted creative times where you are afraid to to engage with your collaborators, and in a way, it's impossible to call them collaborators when you're you're not able to even say, you know what, that's really beautiful. And so, yeah, I don't know if it comes with maturity or if it comes. It's just about finding the right creative space. Um, and I think there's also something about. I'm in love with the millennial generation. I know I know lots of people who aren't, but I really am because I do think um, they're shrewd negotiators, but they're also really, uh, they have an egalitarian uh, aura about them in many ways that, that sort of will allow collaboration to happen. And so I'm, I'm hopeful. That's awesome. Uh, okay, the other questions I had was about uh, the way, like craftsmanship, and it's in yeah. how it intersects with technology. Um, another theme of the show: dying. Like, how do you get somebody who di- like how do you make chain mail if the last person who knew how to make chain mail has retired? Like, how do you get like extraordinary jewelry when you're not training new jewelers to work in the theatrical style? Um, is that now irrelevant if you can, as a designer, make a three D object, print it? Like you're saying, can you print chain mail that's interlinked and is actually yeah. chain mail? Yeah. That's, yeah. That's so, Michael, outrageous. You, you can print chain mail um, that's interlinked rings um, and they're fully interlinked and it's fully maneuverable like chain mail. Um, and it's light. And it's light. Yeah. And it's strong. So, so here's my, here's my theory. No, we're not training craftspeople the same as we used to, right? And it's everyone, not everyone, that's a 
I, I don't want to create a generalization about everyone, but, um, you know, there's lamentation, I think, sometimes about n- we're not training cutters. We don't have tailors. We don't have um, people who understand craft the same way um, that we used to. And so, so therefore, the art form's going to die. We're going to lose tailoring. And I, uh, I have to call bullshit because I don't think that's what's going to happen. I, I think... Um, what, and again, trying not to generalize, but at the same time, I do think it's, it's a Canadian theater problem right now in the way that, uh, that we are working is that we're not embracing technology fast enough. And so, you know, there are great and they are fantastic, um, uh, pattern drafting programs and that other industries are using, um, and also ways of drawing the human figure in three dimensions um, in the computer and creating 3D models. And we're not keeping up and we're not keeping up because um, uh, I think fear of losing craft um, is getting in the way. And I also think um, so the money is not following where it needs to go um, and that the more we fight to keep craft the same as it's always been uh, means we're not embracing new technologies and no we'll never be I still teach so in my costume history class I teach I do a day of teaching how to knit like I do one class of teaching how to knit Um, because it shows people young you know would-be designers okay so when we talk about the knitted garment here you go like put this on and think about historically when I do a day of beading I do a class of just beading and you know we don't get anything done like we don't you know nobody's nobody's leaving a class of 90 minutes and you know leaving a beading expert um but it gives them the notion of what does it mean okay so that that you know renaissance garment we're looking at was hand beaded right so it just gives them the like the thought of it um, because uh, we have a, uh, uh, this millennial generation who's coming up behind us so fast. Um, they don't, it's not that they don't value handcraft. It's that they know there's another way. It's not, it's, you know, I have students who are drafting or modeling, not drafting, but modeling three dimensional, complex three dimensional objects in six hours. Like it, it was uh, that was unthinkable yeah. when you and I were learning how to use CAD software for the first time. Yeah, like I, I, I was in drawing, the late '90s. Yeah, I was drawing. <laughs> I was drawing 3D objects for Cast back in the early 2000s, even. And they, I mean, they had to be simple because they're real. They're live rendered, and so you can't have twelve thousand faces on a thing yeah. because the computer won't handle it. Uh, and it will also take me forever. Plus, I, I was not a 3D artist. Yep. So I don't know how to organically, and, and yes, it's digital, but there's an organic way of working yep. um, to get those shapes out instead of like drawing triangles every day. Um, let the computer do that. <laughs> uh, like I I get it. I totally get it. And I also think, like I'm, uh, Jennifer Treemstra, yeah. who uh, is uh, is running 
um, yeah. starting to get this fact Facts, school. Yeah. Yeah. Dan and Blythe uh, up and running and has been teaching classes, classes on like uh, like lace making and tatting and things like that yeah. that are very <clears throat> delicate and, and an art that not a lot of people do anymore. Um, I told, and I get that, and I and I want, and I believe in that process. Sure. To 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 maintain that shared knowledge, because how are you going to build a program to build lace unless you know how to build lace? Yeah, yeah. Right. But by the same token. But now I can also three D doodle lace. Exactly. I oh, can use three right. D doodler. Right. And I can I can actually trace a lace pattern, and make three dimensional. And now they make stretch yeah. ABS, so oh. I can. I can make stretch lace yeah. out of, you know, so I think, um, y- yes, we want people to learn how to tat. Yeah. Sure. Um, but um, not everybody's going to want to tat. And um, quite frankly, we're not tatting in the theater anymore and, because no. we're buying it from China. So And we've got a show to put up. <laughs> we've got a show to I put up. i got two people and we open and in two weeks. You know, yeah, and I exactly. just need to get the damn Jacobian yeah. collar at yeah. the door. And, and so yeah. I... I live in this world uh, for myself right now. I find my my process is trying to find ways of using technology um, and finding shows. The reason why slime was so perfectly fit together in a way was that it was a show about the future. And so it allowed a sort of imagination of, you know, how do we how do we put these, you know, LEDs into these costumes and why would they be there? Dramaturgically, what's the impetus to do this? Um, But there's other technologies that I think we can embrace, you know, and it will always take another human being in the room to fit a costume. Um, But will it take that human being drafting it by pattern, by pencil and paper to get the first draft done? I don't know. I think, you know, that could also be spit out on a computer and fitting the human body we know is delicate and nuanced work, right? No human body, no two bodies are the same. And so that will always need a human touch. That will always need a cutter who understands how the fabric is going around the body and and where's the grain and where's the edge and, you know, um, how much ease is there and all of that. Um, But do they need to draft it by hand anymore? Maybe not. Um, so I think we're just and fear of losing craft is also preventing us from pushing forward. Yeah. And and I think that that's it would be sad if we were held back by fear. That's a great way to put it. Uh, part of me thinks this is my prepper part of my brain is that when the world fails. <laughs> There's a certain amount of knowledge that we have to have to sort of rebuild. Yeah. Um, but that being said, no one's going to be doing. Well, like, you know, like, I did say to the students, well, now that you know how to knit, yeah. um, you know, you'll be able to trade that for meat yeah. when the grid goes down. Exactly. <laughs> There's a reason why I'm becoming a physician. <laughs> um, yeah, because everyone needs medicine, right? Um, it might be garden medicine. Who knows? <laughs> but yeah, um, that's terrific. I love that. I love that discussion. And, and uh, was there anything else? So how the production go? So were you happy with the result? Yes. And what's happening next? Yes, I was happy with the result. Uh, it went to Vancouver uh, and played in Vancouver. Um, I think 
uh, Kendra and I have been talking about another project that she's also working on um, about rain and about water. And um, so I hope that that will come to Calgary at some point. Um, I'm working, uh, World Stage Design is coming to Calgary in 2021, nice. right? Yeah. And uh, so uh, I'm responsible for bringing that here and I'm excited about that. But before that comes production, uh, not production, Performance Studies International number 25 is coming to Calgary in July. Um, so I don't know, Kendra and I pitched something to try and, dabble with rain while we're here and we'll see we'll see what happens uh that's great i think in the, in canada we do it there's just because we're a colonial nation there's a lot of like reliance on tradition and and mm-hmm. i think audience expectations with the stratford mm-hmm. festival barton beach things like sure. that where you're like there's a traditional form of theater that we're used to that will that we know sells that we know people are used to and can yeah. and have a vocabulary to see but uh, when we look at a lot of international work, I mean, there are different uh, cultural contexts for this work, so it may not be as new and refreshing there as it is here. Uh, I remember when the first world stage design came here, I was looking at all the other work from all the other countries going, oh, my God, why are we not doing this kind of work here? Part of it's money. Yep. But that's, there's only, that's only an excuse for so long. We have to have ideas and take risks, right? Yep. And yeah. part of it's aesthetic, Yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I'm excited about world stage design coming uh, to University of Calgary and and one of our um, you know with CITT and uh, Ian Garrett and Patrick Rizzotti as well are on this um, planning committee um, we're looking at landscape and storytelling right because we Calgary's in this interesting landscape as you know you experience driving to Banff but also when you drive away from Banff and you come into this foothills area vast prairie um and so also conversation with the Blackfoot culture that lives here and so we want to you know um Sakokoto is a Blackfoot elder I've been working with here for two years now off and on on different smaller conversations and projects but he's um agreed to be our our elder um, for this process and to look, you know, we're, we're talking about going to writing on stone and um, having designers spend time in landscape and think about what does our own landscape tell us in terms of how does it influence us as designers, right? So when you grow up, like I did in the middle of the bald Saskatchewan prairie (laughs) and, you know, or when you grow up in the mountains, or if you, you know, live by the ocean or so how does that change? Uh, you know, if you live in an urban center in the middle of Europe with millions of people, how does that change your, your visual aesthetic, your choices, your, what's interesting to you as a designer? That's a very good point. I I know that, uh, as a child, I grew up on the, in the Canadian shield, Mm. uh, in the summers, uh, we had friends up in Paris Sound and, and uh, and that kind of landscape, the yeah. uh, Group of Seven and Algonquin Park and that stuff, really, like that to me, has a lot of emotional weight to it. Sure. So I can imagine living on the prairies, different experience. Yeah. Living in the north, different experience on the tundra or even the, like further, further north uh, in the mountains. And, yeah, I, I totally get it. I, I, I understand how that, uh, it's interesting to explore those ideas and in fact, not just let them be default not just sort of you go, oh, just plumbing my own kind of artistic depths, but I have to mm. understand where I came from and what my aesthetic is in order to 
move forward. Well, and allow you to interrogate it a bit, right? To kind of go, why and how? And I think that that would also, I'm I'm excited about going through the process, right? And, And sort of looking at it and going, seeing how other designers respond um, in the sense of, of looking at once you're aware of it, what does it change? You know? So I think, I think there's a possibility there to sort of crack open some process for people. Um, You know, and and we're also looking at ecosonography as a part of that, that conversation with landscape and Ian Garrett being very, uh, he's our eco, eco sonography guy um, in Canada right now. So I think, uh, yeah, we've got some exciting, exciting plans. Yeah. That's awesome. I also want to say that I, um, having gone to Ryerson, uh, which is, which when I went there was a more practical school. Like it was about producing technical technicians, uh, technical technicians, (laughs) or completely (laughs) in technical technicians, maybe. (laughs) Uh, technical directors, lighting designers, sound sure. designers, sound technicians, carpenters, blah, blah, blah. and not a lot, not a big design focus other than lighting design, uh, led by Sholem Dulgoy. But um, uh, I always had this kind of disconnect from uh, research oh, and yeah. what research means mm-hmm. and how that drives the art forward because it didn't really seem that way. Um, unlike other fields research really is at the forefront of creating new ideas and asking new questions and, and, uh, and, and coming up with new answers to things and fl- uh, fleshing out kind of our model of how that world works in theater. There seems to be like, there's still an, like a, a an uneasy marriage, but uh, I was speaking to Robert Gardner at UBC and it was the first time I'd considered, uh, like he's trying to make the argument because from academia, yeah. their, 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 their idea or their uh, priority is producing papers, producing, yep. you know, uh, like doing research, public publishing in, uh, you know, specific journals. And in theater, which is a, like a plastic art, where the, the, the work that we're producing is not in a journal. It's an experience that we that have an audience for, et cetera. And that those two things are equivalent or should be equivalent academically and that has given me more excitement about this kind of work yeah. where like as long as it can be shared with working artists who are not in the university and push their work forward yeah. um, or creating or uh, helping train new artists that are then going out into the world and saying, I'm going to do this new thing that we are working on. And, you, you know, University of Calgary has, yep. you know, uh, had that work. So, so I think it's interesting because I think. Um Oh, so many thoughts coming to me right now. Um, uh, so the University of Calgary is, you know, maybe not uh, the only one, but it is unique in that it's written right into our tenure and promotion documentation that creative activity and creative works are the equivalent of those papers and you know so there's not really an argument to be made, but there is every day a kind of Um, you know, when you're talking to traditional, traditional scholars, um, uh, a a sort of conversation about what does that mean? Like the, you know, you kind of have to explain yourself a lot. Um, but I do, I do think, yes, the, the research aspect of it, if, 
if research is the generation of the, the creation of new knowledge, right? Every production um, that's not, uh, you know, uh, anarchic <laughs> is uh, can generate new knowledge. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the difference is, is that our dissemination method mm-hmm. is the work itself. Right. And so that, you know, um, but there are artists right now and we have we have a few here um, that espouse um, performance as research. Right. So um, looking at uh, performance as a research itself. Um, And so it allows for scholarly publication and performance creation as as both scholarly entities. Right. Um, which as a practitioner, um, I get on many levels. And then as someone who's a practitioner, I don't get on other levels. Um, uh, but you know, I, I've published the occasional article and I'm, I'm not opposed to disseminating at conferences. I've done that a fair bit as a, you know, in my role as an academic. Um, but I do think sharing knowledge in conferences and, and, it's really important to me to get students to see new work. So I'm excited about bringing world stage design back to Canada. I'm excited every time I take a student to the Prague Quadrennial, um, even if it's only one student. Um, but you know, if I can take six, great. Um, because it just opens their eyes about the continuum, right? That, that it's not just what you see in Calgary. It's bigger than that it's not just what you can see in Canada right like that was part of the excitement about the Magnetic North Festival when it started right was was sort of the opportunity to actually see what one thing that came from Newfoundland um see one thing that came from Vancouver that you wouldn't have got to see otherwise um and sort of creating a a national identity in in a even in a disconnected way but still in a in a, at least understanding that there's a continuum of work yeah. that that somehow we're connected. Yeah. I, I uh, it's sad that it's not continuing. I, I when it was in Magnolia was in Kitchener, I think. Uh, it's, or Waterloo. it's got a new life now, right? It's yeah. going to be with Push. Oh, great! Oh, that's terrific. Is that's what I'm, that's my understanding. That's awesome. We should check that. We should verify that fact. It'll be in the show notes, and this show actually <laughs> will be aired like. <laughs> In 2020, I don't know when it's going to be out. Like I've got like seven, there's eight, there's nine other interviews before this. Sure. I have to I'm try and get them out earlier. But so this may be out of date by the time we have a conversation. But people, time people hear it. Um, it strikes me as well that um, I, I was at Banff talking to Matt Flan, who's the head of lighting there, and uh, we had a chance to sort of duck into their film and TV building, right? And I got a little tour of the studios there uh, from Augustino. Nope, that's not his name. I'll, his name will be in the show notes as well. Who, the, the head technician who runs the whole film department for lighting and, uh, uh, and video. And uh, he, um, we were talking about archival, like what Banff is doing to share their work outside of uh, Banff. Mm-hmm. Because it's a great uh, like incubator for work. And in the past, work was created there and then brought the rest of the country now that funding mm-hmm. model has changed mm-hmm. and that may not be the opportunity people have certainly with the digital arts yeah writing music um 
anything that can be put that can be digitized can be shared. But um, they tried some YouTube, you know, kind of Facebook Live kind of things that didn't get a lot of viewership because people aren't consuming art that way, I guess. And I wonder if there's there's got to be a way mm-hmm. that we can now with the quality of camera, you don't have to overlight everything to like to do a video yeah um you can actually do something archival maybe multi-camera yep you know that that can that can capture you know live events um it's well, they're, where to well they're that, doing right? it right they're doing the met's doing it yeah the that's true Stratford festival's doing it yeah. the yeah but you I know mean, that's fine i mean i'd love to see a met show i love to see a Stratford show yeah. i want to see what uh one yellow rabbit is doing oh yeah i right? think it's one of those uh i don't think we're far from that, like, I think the millennials are going to take care of that. Yeah. I really do. Yeah. Like, I think in some ways, um, I have so much hope, you know, uh, with, with what this, <laughs> this generation, um, you know, of entitled brats is going to come up with. Like, I, I, you know, I'm fascinated by them. I'm fascinated by their thinking process. I'm fascinated by their... Um, incredible ability to learn by their empathy um, as well as their, their, you know, digital native uh, ability to just find a way to, they've made it a part of their lives. And so um, it it will come naturally to them just like breathing, figuring out how to share stuff. And monetize it really, because that's what YouTube's all about, right? <laughs> totally will. Like, you know, how can uh, I create something people are going to watch? This is these are these are savvy, savvy individuals. And judging from the, I'm sorry, garbage <laughs> and base entertainment stuff that I'm like, I have friends, kids are watching on YouTube. Yeah, and I just go, like, I mean, Saturday morning cartoons weren't much better with content, but at least they had production value. <laughs> You know what I mean? And I'm now, sorry, like, <laughs> totally cackling, but but yeah, my kid will sit and watch um, the opening of a Kinder Egg. Yes, right, repeatedly because because what is it? It's the dopamine hit of what's in the fucking egg. Exactly. Oh my god! Um, and and so it can, you know, I've had to explain to my five year old what dopamine is, right. so I can explain why I'm turning off the iPad. Right. Yeah, yeah exactly. Oh my God. Okay. So, uh, I, I, I share your optimism. I go to school with millennials who are the next generation of physicians and other healthcare professionals and they're all extraordinary people. And I was not that capable at the age of 23. <laughs> and like, maybe I was in other ways, but I was more interested in like, it's funny. Let's go to the bar. So, um, that's great. Let's talk about the ADC. Sure. Speaking of going to the bar. Um, now, you were on the board of ADC. Take me through your journey there. What you think the challenges were? Okay, so my, I'll I'll give you a little quick background. So my first experience with ADC was meeting Chuck Homewood. Mm-hmm. My next experience with ADC was no one answering the phone, mm-hmm. um, or email, or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So feeling like I didn't quite belong there, mm-hmm. um, or why the hell would I want to belong there? And then my next experience was with Robert Gardner. Very funny who said who came to see my thesis production at u of a and said i'm taking you out to lunch tomorrow (laughs) 
Okay. So I ended up going for coffee and brownies, actually. But anyway, um, and he said, you need to join ADC. And I said, why on earth would I bother? And he said, if we can't get you, we're fucked. And I said, okay, how does, how is there any benefit for me? He said, if it's the, is it a question about the, the fee? And I said, no, I don't think so. And he said, I'll pay your fee for a year. I'll pay your fee. I said, Robert, you don't have to pay my fee. He said, he said, you need to join. And I was like, okay, I'll think about it. But I said, if I'm going to join, I need to be on the board. Because I'm not, yeah. I'm not just going to join and uh, figure it out. And he said, fine, I'll nominate you for the board. <laughs> and so he just kept calling my bluff. <laughs> and, and so eventually I relented um, and joined and joined the board. And, and I had to eat my words because I was a part of the um, designers working group with Danny Lynn after, after her Saminovich speech and, you know, was adamant that the ADC was, was old news and not going to do any good. But I, we learned some hard lessons with the designers working group, right? The, the, just, just back up one second and tell me how that developed. First of all, let, just let everyone know what happened with Danny Lynn. Sure. Just so we have some continuity. Sure. In, Cause this is, I don't, we haven't talked about this before on the show. Okay. So, so Danny Lynn, wins the Sminovich prize and and makes a fairly um truthful um speech at the Sminovich prize about the difficulty of being a designer in the contemporary context and and explains about how hard it is um to be working at some of the biggest companies in the country and making $3 an hour, five fifty, or whatever she quoted, but it was an obscene number. Right. And I think, you know, there are still designers who are pissed off and angry about that speech. And Natalie Rewa published it in, in a, in a journal article. And, um, uh, yeah, some designers I've spoken to, will get Im- get emblazoned about this speech. Um, and some are really grateful to Danny for making the speech. And some, um, so love it or hate it, it actually was a catalyst of great change for theater designers in this country. And so, you know, string me up and, you know, beat me with sticks, but it's the truth. And I think uh, that was the catalyst for an alternate group than the ADC because the ADC had been closed off. They hadn't signed a new member in a decade Um, and they didn't think they needed to, right? And so I think what we were seeing was a generational shift that was seismic um, at that time. So there there were very few, you know, Gen Xers in the ADC. Um, there were an awful lot of baby boomers and, um, the millennials were coming up right on our heels, right? That I don't think we were, maybe they were starting to be called millennials then. Um, but like Gen Y or something, Gen Y and Gen something something else, but, but it doesn't matter. Um, there, there was another bigger generation coming up behind Gen X and we knew it was coming. And I think, um, 
this new group, so Designers Working Group, um, really wanted to make a difference and wanted to what what was driving it was um, making better working conditions for designers in the sense of remuneration and being able to have a conversation about what we were getting paid and why we were being paid the way that we were. And also having a conversation about membership and what does membership mean? And, um, and why are so many people being excluded from a group that's supposed to be inclusive? And, and it's not a union. So what the hell, like why, why can't anybody join? Like, you know, so there were lots of questions about, about that. And that was also shaking a bit of the foundation of, why ADC was created and going into the history of that. And, you know, that's a whole other, like we could spend, I spent hours talking about that, that history. Um, so, um, the obstacle for designers working group was two things. Um, ADC had the advantage of being, uh, uh, incorporated as a national entity and also had the uh, ear of PACT. So ADC has the negotiating rights with PACT, right? So the contract says they won't make any other collective agreement um, with another, um, with anybody else um, until this contract folds or is over. And, you know, it, it automatically renews until we decide. It doesn't, right? And both parties have to agree. So so designers working group would have been limited and, and was also, it lost steam when we got to the point of, so do we incorporate? How do we incorporate? Where do we incorporate? Why would we incorporate? Um, and so there was, um, you know, it just lost momentum. And I won't deny that that I think there was a certain amount of strong I'm trying to be polite but I think you know people were afraid of of the militancy in some ways of designers working group you know um of how how tough that language was yeah it's not unusual it's, uh, the Canadian theater community is really interesting there's like as for as much as we get pinned as lefty kind of pinko <laughs> you know sometimes anarchist like like yep. as much as that is like the myth it's quite conservative extremely and uh right from like the roots of the me too movement to colonialism to uh equal pay yep right um uh all that stuff like we're still <laughs> there are a lot of roots that are tough that are go deep and are tough to pull out of the ground um and when and there's not and there's not enough work and we're already precarious asking for more from the government from funders from who are all conservative i mean you know small c kind of don't want to there's not a lot of money to go around so we want to we want to make the we want to make the best choices yeah so when someone says that's not good enough and stands up and actually tries to live up to this lefty social democratic kind of ideal feminist feminist right like let's like take people who are in power and go you've had enough now we're going to put somebody else there people get freaked out because there's not enough work mm-hmm. there's not like 
people's livelihoods, people's homes, people's rent, and everyone's living like it's a bit of a it's a bad situation. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So I'm not surprised. Especially in two thousand what, four? 2008? That would have been 2006. 2006. Just before the housing crisis, post-SARS, post-recession. Yes. Everyone's like, what the hell am I going to do now? And now there's this group saying that you're going to pay me more money, and I I just want to take the next gig. Yeah. So not surprising at all. And you want to rock the boat. Like, are you out of your mind? Yeah. Don't rock this boat. So, so, that happened in 2006. Designers Working Group had lots of steam for about a year. And then um, I was in Edmonton. I came back to receive the Simnovich Prize, Protégé Prize, went back home to Edmonton, where I was studying at the time. And then, you know, 2008, met Robert Gardner, who said, you need to join. Um, you know, and he, he also said that because he knew that I was working with the designers working group, was passionate about, about things that concern designers. But I wasn't nearly as controversial as that's Danny Lynn, right? And, um, you know, uh, and Robert and I got along great. Yeah. And and uh, so anyway, eventually I joined and I had to eat my words, which my words when I belonged to the designers working group, this is why you never say never, um, is I had said, and I'll even quote myself, and said, you know, there's no way I'm going to join the ADC. I'm never going to go toe-to-toe with Phil Silver over arguing about you know, designers' rights. Well, I had to eat those words and hard because not only did I join the board, but Phil was the president. And I don't know how many times he and I went toe-to-toe. I have great respect for Phil. Um, And and, uh, he's actually coming here this week to do a unit review um, on this drama division. Um, And so I'm, you know, inviting Phil Silver in to critique my (laughs) drama division. Um, And... Uh, I I can't wait to hear what he has to say. Like I, I'm looking forward to it. Um, but I also, uh, you know, uh, that took a lot of courage, right? And Erica Hassel and I yeah. <laughs> and Sheila White on that board, I, we gave Phil a good run for his money. Um, you know, there were days where I think he'd probably wished. He was doing something else um, other than arguing with these three very strong-willed women. And um, we did a lot of good in that time. You know, even, you know, um, Phil as president, uh, we had Renee Brode, Erica Hassel, myself, um, Sheila White, Mike Walsh, uh, Wade Staples, a variety of, you know, there might be others that I'm missing and sorry that I am, but, um, you know, we brought, uh, costume design fees up to par with set design fees. I mean, that was controversial within the organization. There were big fights. There was people pounding on the back of chairs. Um, you know, uh, which for designers to get that excited over something (laughs) was really remarkable. I I was around when we, when we first did the, when we had the minimum fee argument Hmm. in the the mid nineties, 97 ish, 96 ish. Uh, and maybe 97, 98 ish. Cause I think they were in con, they were in negotiations with Ivan Hamel, who was on the pact side. Yeah. Um, Erica Hassel's partner, yeah. which is, yeah. Says everything about Canadian theater. Uh, they're both lovely people. I love them both. Um, and 
no one had run the math. Everyone knew the costume designers were getting hosed and largely women. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and then they like, we looked at all the numbers and agreed to make it, you know, public at least for the membership. And we're always like, well, damn, how the hell do we get costume designers paid more? Everyone's afraid we're getting, taking a cut. Everyone's afraid of their fees going down yep. to like, like that's so the argument. biggest challenge with minimum fees was that they were never written in stone. Yeah. And so we also made that happen. Yeah. Right. And so they got locked in yeah. still controversial, still hear about it today. Um, however, um, so in the last round of negotiations, I spent a year, yeah. Michael, I spent a year running the numbers and so taking all the fee data and looking at what's happening to the floor, yeah. right? So was the floor actually going up? Right. The floor was actually going up. Was the top coming down? No. The fact is, is that there was less work. Right. So um, it, the floor is not coming down. The floor is going up. And the top was also still going up. The problem was the minimum fees hadn't changed enough. And so Gail Packwood started at the office shortly before this last negotiation. And she found uh, a letter that Sholem Dolgo had written in 1998. I have it here somewhere. Um, on this fabulous like brown and harvest gold letterhead from the ADC that um, listed the original minimum fees. And they weren't really that different. So Simon Rossiter, who happens to be an Excel spreadsheet whiz kid, also was looking at the tail end of this as we're getting closer and closer to negotiation. Yeah. So we do, we, we do this look, and, and Sholem Dolgoy has been my guide through most of this. I've been like, ever since I became president of ADC for those last four years, Sholem was like on my speed dial. And I'd be like, Sholem, oh my God, what am I going to do? And so he'd say, well, uh, do this, do that. And I, oh yeah, great, brilliant. Um, so... So he was quite interested in what was going to happen with this negotiation. So we we looked at the fees. We looked at where the minimums were. We looked at where the what was happening at the top end. So what was happening is that the minimum recommended fee was too low. Essentially, the problem is is that the minimum fees were way too low, and we all knew that. This is not rocket science. I didn't like you know discover how they get the the caramel into the Cadbury bar. I like, you know, um, had just found the math to prove it. And so what we did is we took the letter. Um, we did two things. We hired Lucy White, um, who was uh, an executive director at PACT for a number of years. Um, and we paid the, the best amount of hundred I won't I won't name her fee online on the radio but um on the radio on the <laughs> podcast um but um the best money ADC's ever spent in a consultant's fee and um talked to her for an hour and a half on the phone with the group of designers and negotiators that were going to go to the, the the negotiations with pact and she advised that the best thing we could do was to approach the question of fees um with the fairness argument and that that is the only argument that ever appeals to pact because they are a lowest common denominator organization. So the unionization argument scares the hell out of them 
but it won't necessarily affect the fees, right? Because we've been down that argument with them as well. And and it does scare them, but that's not necessarily the result you want. You don't necessarily want them scared. You want them collaborating. So she said, go with the argument of fairness. Go with the argument of, you know, how are you going to sustain the younger generation? How are new Canadians going to get into the theater if they can't make a living? So ha- have that conversation with them. Yeah. So we did. We had that conversation. We, we brought that up. We talked about it. Um, but we also brought the, <laughs> we brought the letter from Sholem yeah. and said, and these were the fees in 1998 or 96 or whatever it was. And look at how much they've changed. And then we showed them if it had increased by inflation, this is where Simon's yeah. Kid Skills came in. Um, if it increased by inflation... Where would we be if the fees from 19, the 1990s were increased by inflation up to now? And we said, so this is where we need to be yeah. just to meet inflation. Yeah. And then the other thing we did is we offered them a five-year plan as opposed to a three-year plan, which means that they don't have to negotiate with us for five years instead of in three years, which also allows them, them being packed and producers, um, to absorb these increases in fees um, over a granting cycle. Because the granting cycles are three years. That is clever. So that's how we got the buy-in. So we're seeing for the first time ever um, an increase in base fee because I would prefer to call it base fee as the minimum fee, because I don't think minimum applies. I think it's a base. Um, but an increase in base fees, especially for you know sound designers, projection designers, um, of like 72% over five years. Who's making 72% over five years? Nobody, um, except Canadian sound designers who are ADC members. So we also did a comparison, and, and the data's not complete, between the Designers Guild data that was collected and the ADC data that was collected. And, and you know, if I had to sum that up in, in two words, it would be membership pays um, because ADC designers are making more by those stats. So I know those stats are incomplete. I was just going to say, isn't there a, um, like the, there's a certain top tier of designers in ADC yeah. that are the, a level designers who are all making the top fees. Nespa. Mm. I mean, I, yes I, and no. So, so I'll explain it to you this way. So, once you've made um, uh, $50,000 in, in design fees, right, um, you will receive back a check from ADC um, that reimburses you, oh, right. right, or the cap. So, so to hit the cap, in filing fees, right, the two percent per contract, right. Once you've made fifty k, you, you've hit the thousand bucks, right. So, but I can tell you, as having been president for four years and having been the one signing that check, well, actually longer than that, signing the check because I was vice president before that. Um, it's not the same designers every year, and there's a handful. Like I've never signed more than eight checks in reimbursement. Right. So, but they're not the same eight. No, but also so, says a lot about 
how much money people how much are money people are making yeah. in in ADC contracts yeah. right they're probably making money doing other things so there's independent projects there's commercial work there, there's film, there's commercial there's work there's film yeah. there's you know corporate events there's yeah. um, assisting work I mean sure. that's how I paid my rent in Toronto right yeah. I assisted everybody and their dog mm-hmm. <laughs> like um, and I did corporate work and I you know um, so you know. I, in that time of the designers working group where Danny actually collected the name of 500 people in the country who self-declared them, you know, uh, as theater designers, a lot of the current ADC members would look at the list and go, but, but they're not working as a designer exclusively. And that was the sort of snobby reaction. But, but quite frankly, there are very few who are. Um, who aren't taking dressing calls, who aren't also, you know, pulling a union call every now and then or working as an arts administrator or running a console at a a commercial show or whatever. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. So, oh, well, they design carpets as well on the side. So effing what? Um, So, um, you know, there are very few and a lot of those um, who would say things like that would be like, would be academics. Drive me crazy because you go, well, yeah, but you're not making a living just as a designer. You're also, you know, you're working at an institution. Actually, your full-time gig is not designing. Yeah. It's teaching, yeah. you know? Um, so, yeah, ADC is an interesting, mm-hmm. an interesting entity in Canadian theater. And, and um, but, yeah, it's a, it, it saddens me. Uh, to think about the history where where there was that time where no one was answering the phone. Yeah. And I think, you know, designer Lorenzo's got a great story about that too, about, you know, having been voted in as a member mm-hmm. <laughs> and then never getting the notification. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, yeah. I, I just think uh, times have changed quite a bit. Um, yeah. It's a new kind of organization. Yeah. Um, I remember waiting for my stamp. Oh god. That I never got. I got the last stamp. What? I never yeah. got a stamp. I got I, the last one. I never ever got one. I was there 96 7. Yep. I joined 98 maybe. Nope, never got a stamp. Um but and I was also working in digitally so I was just like I just yeah. I would just put the put AC, the logo on. Yeah. I'm also the last member who went through the portfolio review. Okay, so that's interesting. So I remember the portfolio reviews. And when we're talking about this kind of like exclusionary, this exclusive club thing, uh, I had had a couple of different thoughts. So one is um, ADC uh, was touting um, one of the the points about ADC when it started was about setting a minimum level of minimum standard of ability to communicate paperwork, the system, whatever you use to be able to like... When you hire a DC designer, you should be able to get a plot. That's in the lighting design world. A plot, all the schedules, section. the section, blah, 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 all that stuff. If you're a custom designer, you're getting all the renderings, you're doing the buying, blah, 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 whatever, it, whatever it is. Um, and then, the, and because there were per- people at the time who were like showing up with napkins, yeah. or pointing, which happened <laughs> all the time with lighting, uh, you know, or 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 whatever, or like yeah. all the other things you yeah. can do but that. Yeah. And so that's that was the point of the portfolio review. But on the other hand, there was also this kind of like, what is the minimum standard? 
Mm-hmm. Is that good enough? And I remember at Shaw, we had a conversation about what if we don't put all the information on the plot? What if, it, what if it's just a bunch of fixtures with a number on each one and then you correlate that with the paperwork? Like, why do we have to do this grand, like, Baroque <laughs> thing that is important <laughs> to us? I love it, Baroque. But the, the, but the yeah. head electrician is going to go, cut it all up and go and mm-hmm. highlight it and go, yeah. I only need to know what fixture goes where and what the scale is. And then I'm going to do everything else with the paperwork. And so, you know, yes, the, it was a minimum standard, an appropriate minimum standard. And were people not getting in because they, I don't know, didn't have the portfolio to show? Like, um, So it depends who you talk to. But um, the big argument, you know, this is one of my, my toe-to-toe moments, um, was why do we have the portfolio review? What's the advantage to the association of the portfolio review? And the reason why the portfolio review historically came in. So yeah, yeah, there was the question of standards between designers. But it was packed that wanted the portfolio review. But they want they wanted a way for ADC to to justify the negotiation with Pact. And so to be able to say, yeah, you hire an ADC designer, you're going to get X Y and Z. But what Pact never reciprocated was an exclusivity clause. So we'll only hire ADC designers because we're guaranteed to get X, Y, and Z. So they treated us like a union when they wanted to, but they didn't respect us as a union when they didn't want to. So the other, uh, so my argument there is the reason you need to get rid of the portfolio review was because it was acting as a hindrance for membership. So people who had been working in the industry for 20 years or 10 years or even five didn't want to go through the portfolio review because they knew they could communicate well enough. And who was anybody that ADC was going to put on a committee to tell them that they weren't doing a good job because they're getting hired. Plus it's kind of a pain in the ass. I mean, Plus it's kind of a pain in the ass. Like I had like, I remember spending, I mean, it was gathering stuff and I was pulling all together, but like I got three shows, I'm going out of the city. I had been designing for like 18 years. Yeah when I put my and then the hurdle was they wanted costume plots and so I ended up I ended up sending 12 and said does is that enough for you now um kind of you know feeling like an absolute smart ass but but uh so my point was that you know ADC is using the portfolio review and it's only the only thing that it's done is become a hurdle to attracting new members. And if we have more members, we have more power. And so, you know, then there there was a lot of questions, you know, Phil had lots of (laughs) president had lots of questions was sort of going, so how do we, how do we justify the pact that we've gotten rid of the portfolio review? And I said, I don't think that they'll give a shit one way or the other because they're not adhering to it. So you give us exclusivity and we'll put the portfolio review back in and we'll let them know that. You know, and we took the portfolio review out and PACT hasn't cared less, right? Other designers have mentioned, oh, wow, how are we maintaining our standards? Um, well, we have, we've just republished. There's a brand new standards booklet, yeah. right? Um, hot off the press this year um, with the standards of communication that's been updated for digital technologies and things like that. Um, and so we still communicate with each other about what's good practice, what's, useful what's not useful what's you know and those are guidelines they're not no one can tell any designer 
you must render in this particular method, right? If I want to do, you know, if I want to do my costume sketches as sculptures out of orange peels, then that's my business. Um, And, you know, if the theater wants to hire me to do that, that's their business. I was going to say, and everyone gets to do that once. And then next year... (laughs) Yeah. Right when Director X yeah. comes back and goes, don't hire Cruz again. He did his damn thing in Orange Peels, well, and then there's, you're done. My favorite, right? my favorite complaint from Pact so far has been, um, it, it's lovely. Um, well, this designer handed in drafting that didn't have any measurements on it, and I said, okay. Well, did you pay them? Yeah, yeah we did. Well, that's your own problem. You you have the biggest. Um, incentive in your hands, right? I could chase them as the president of ADC and tell them they have to put measurements on their drawings, but that will do no good. But you have a paycheck. So don't give him the paycheck till he puts the dimensions on the drawing. Exactly. There's a deadline and it's it's in the con, like the first, you know, when the design deadline is due, you get a check. Yeah. Just don't give them the check. I bet you the dimensions would go on that drawing. Yeah. In a heartbeat. And then if you delay it, the check when it's late, <laughs> yes. the next time, it's going to be on time. Otherwise, yes. you don't get paid. Yeah. Like, I understand people getting late. And you can negotiate that. Like, I've got a totally. thing. I'm going to be two you days. pick up the phone and exactly. make a phone call. It's fine. But, you know, if you are got 16 carpenters waiting to build a thing and you're two days late, well, your check's going to be two days late, too. Or you're going to have a penalty. You can yeah. negotiate a penalty within yeah. the contract, right? Yeah. Like, there's other ways to do that than just, like have us police our own members about well and what are they going to say to me yeah. i'm going to call them and say uh you need to put dimensions on your drawing or you won't get paid or i'm just going to say you need to put dimensions on your drawing because you're embarrassing the adc you know I, somebody will just flip me the bird like that's not, <laughs> it's not gonna fix anything exactly okay so that was like that's great i'm i'm so happy to hear all of those things uh, about the ADC, and I think that the Design f- uh, Guild, Designers Guild on uh, Facebook, which has like about 650 or 700 members. Oh, now, yeah. Um, I'm glad that everyone's working together on this. I had a big conversation with Connor Moore in Vancouver yeah. about this over the over the holidays. That'll be, that people will have already heard that interview by the time okay. they're hearing from you. So this is, again, something we're trying to do here. Um, thank you so much for doing this today. We're now like, a hundred hours into the interview um, and people are on their like seventh day of listening to this in their car on their commute to work or wherever they're doing. Uh, but it sounds like you've got a hell of a lot of optimism. I do. About the future. Um, the kids here at, at uh, University of Calgary uh, sound like they're inspiring. Yeah. Um, I, can I just say, I, I worked in Edmonton um, Literally, well, I, I was at the Mayfield about in 2012, I think, yeah. with Ron, our buddy Ron Jenkins. Uh, and then uh, before that, Black Rider. And Edmonton was a great place to be. I, uh, Calgary has been a terrific place to hang out for the week. I mean, I've been doing other things, not the yeah. arts. But it's an extraordinary place, Alberta. And there's a lot of stigma, I think, especially these days with the pipelines <laughs> and Jason Kenney and like a lot of crap going mm-hmm. on in this province that... I mean, Ontario, we can't throw shade because we have our own problems <clears throat> with our own ridiculous premiere. But, um, like, it sounds like a very 
a great place to make art. I think it is. Right. I, I, uh, I think there's there. You know, Calgary loves to live up to its maverick reputation, um, in in lots of ways, and likes to use that as a sort of, um, you know, calling card in a kind of way. But I do. I you know, there's lots of new work happening in Alberta. In Calgary, um, there's a new theater company in Lethbridge, this small town. I think Albertans love theater, you know, and Alberta is an interesting province also because of its size. But you have to think, you know, there are two cities of about a million people, Edmonton and Calgary, and they're two and a half hours apart. And um, artists go back and forth, not as much as you'd imagine, but they do go back and forth. And... Um, you know, we have two A, three A houses in this province alone. Toronto's got one, really, can stage, um, when they're at the Bluma. Um, whereas, you know, Theatre Calgary, um, Citadel's got two A houses plus some smaller ones. Um, so there's a lot of work that's happening here. And then we have the BAM Center. So... And we have some pretty amazing schools in Alberta. So, you know, U of A with its conservatory style programs, its liberal arts program, U of C here with our liberal arts program and our MFA program and the research focus. And, you know, uh, Lethbridge, Red Deer uh, and McEwen. Mm -hmm. So, you know, cranking out uh, lots of eager technicians. I've never met a technician who was trained at Red Deer College that I haven't loved Um, have never, uh, you know, had a bad experience working with, uh, I, I did a few shows at at McEwen, um, not that long ago and had a great time working with their students, you know, an army of technicians and, and, you know, being interviewed there where the production manager at the time said, I don't need any of this minimalist crap. I need scenery. And I got 30 students. I got to build it just bring on the scenery more molding more <laughs> yeah more molding. molding so i ended up I the want first a chair rail i want a picture <laughs> rail i want a crown molding i want a cornice molding I there had so much scenery they couldn't build it all um, so the false pros got cut cut at the at the end because they just couldn't deal um so it was brilliant but uh i i just you know i think there's a can do kind of spirit in alberta um no matter where you are and uh, it's refreshing and I love it. That's terrific. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the Tetra Block. Thanks, Michael. Awesome. That was designer April Visco talking to me from the Department of Drama at the University of Calgary in February 2019. Next time, a chat with lighting and live event designer Robert Sondergaard. The music for this podcast is by Vern Good, with voiceover by Gabriel Cropley. Please go to Apple Podcasts and give us a review. It'll help get the word out about this podcast and show the history of theatre design in Canada. And you can follow us on Twitter at thetitleblockca and on facebook.com slash thetitleblockpodcast. You can send comments and requests by email to thetitleblock at gmail.com. And don't forget that if you like this show, please support us on patreon.com. Feel free to share this with your friends, colleagues, students, and teachers, or listen to it while you frantically search your active contracts for the language around billing. I'm Michael Cruz, and I'll see you next time on The Title Block.
talk and about one of my that. very first things in Toronto was assisting Cameron Porteous on Michael's exhibit at the Harborfront Center. Um, as a cu- as a cu- as, as an assistant curator, curator yeah. I was like. I was putting grommets into plastic, but whatever. That's what they called me. And um, I was responsible for Michael Levine's sketchbooks. So I had instructions, right? I had just moved to Toronto. Like I had only been to Toronto maybe six months. And (laughs) Michael gave me instructions to meet Victoria Wallace. So I meet Victoria Wallace. I also assisted Victoria at Stratford once. Anyway, so I I took uh, took all these sketchbooks. from victoria and had them in this office i was working for fireworks marketing group as well it's kind of my day job yeah doing big corporate events and um i had michael's sketchbooks in my office there and at one point i left and they were all in garbage bags because that was all we had to put them in right because they were, they were so heavy and so many of them and it was raining or something anyway so victoria gave me garbage bags. i came back and somebody had moved the garbage bags and i just <gasps> oh like my God. Yeah, my whole career flashed in yes, front of my exactly. eyes. Um, anyway, so they were quickly removed from garbage bags, and uh, yeah, so that yeah, people knew what they were. Yeah. My, yeah, that's a good tip. Don't store crap in garbage bags. Don't store important stuff in garbage bags. So, oh my God. You know, and then I had this paranoia of like, what if somebody steals them? What am I? How am I gonna? Yeah. yeah. Anyway, um, God. sort of like carrying around the, the geniuses' uh, sketchbooks, right? Yeah, but indeed. it was an amazing experience because I got to look through all of these sketchbooks. Um, and and understand Michael Levine's process a bit. Yeah, yeah you know. exactly. Yeah. That's terrific. Uh, you've worked with Ronnie Jenkins. Yes, and I love working with Ron Jenkins. My hero. I love working with Ron Jenkins. He called me. I was in Vancouver, um, <laughs> and I was interviewing Scott Miller, uh, who runs DWD Design now. Yeah. And uh, for about theater consulting. Wait, my phone's going to die. Yeah. And... FaceTime goes off. No one ever FaceTimes me. Yes. Who FaceTimes people? Not me. No. Children FaceTime each other. And uh, I'm like, who's FaceTiming me? And there's like Ron Jenkins' mug. Hey, Cruzy. What are you doing? What are you doing? Yeah. I'm like, I'm in the middle of an interview. I'm, I'm interviewing. Here's Scott Miller. Oh, you don't know Scott Miller. Yeah, I'm not. Uh, uh, you should come to the East Coast. I'm like, why am I coming to the East Coast? We're going to do Greece. It's like, I can't do Greece. I'm in, like, I'm in med school, right? I don't have two weeks where I can do Greece. I don't have five days I can do Greece. If I had five days to do Greece, mm. that's where I would do it, with him. He, with him, right? Oh, but, I would walk on glass. Oh, like, come on. To work with Ron Jenkins. So yeah. much fun. And I, will, no I was in Ottawa with Peter Hinton, Winston Morgan, and myself. Fun. And we all went out drinking one night. <laughs> and we're exactly 10 years apart. Oh, fun. So I'm 10 years younger than Peter, and Winston was 10 years older than Peter. And it was like 1 o'clock in the morning, and Peter and Winston, I was just around for the, along for the ride, really. I'm like, I've never been to Ottawa. They're like, let's go to Hall, because the bars are open until whenever. There's got to be a gay bar in Hall. We're like, I was like, okay, let's go. Sure. Like, I, I can't believe I'm going to go to Hall and drink at some sort of... With these two theater these icons? two theater icons. <laughs> and Winston was a doll. Funny? Like, crazy. I never got to meet Winston. I've only ever heard of Winston. And and I've heard so many stories about Winston yeah. and know so many people who were mentored by Winston. But I never actually had the privilege. Yeah, he's a remarkable man. He was a remarkable man.